because of your desire to follow Jesus into the watery grave of baptism. It's my pleasure, my friend, as a minister of the gospel to baptize you in the name of the Father who loves you, in the name of the Son who died for you, in the name of the Spirit who will keep you safe in Him. You heard me down. My brother, started the Avenus History Podcast seven years ago on this day, I had absolutely no idea that thousands of people would tune in each and every month to catch the latest episode. I had no idea that we'd have a hundred thousand downloads a year. And I had no idea that I would end up baptizing someone who made the decision to follow Jesus after listening to this podcast. Yeah, that's what you just heard, and it's amazing. Now, I've said from the start that I'm not an expert teaching you guys. People call me a historian on social media because what else do you say? Podcaster doesn't sound so great, I guess, to people, but I'm happy with podcaster. I'm not a historian. I am a fellow student. I am learning with you as we go. And this is the 100th episode of the Avenus History Podcast. You wear me down. My actions will be forgiven. When we first met. And it is a celebration of all of those Avenus historians who have done the work, work I rely upon to tell this story of Avenus history. Guys, my episodes have a bunch of footnotes with these people's names in them. These are, these are notes that you guys don't see, but they're there and I rely upon them. And so I just wanted an episode that checks in with them, that talks with them, that appreciates them for all of the hard work that they do, and they do do a lot of hard work. And we get to interview them today. Yeah, it's going to be great. This episode is different. Of course, we are pausing our regularly scheduled discussion of the 1950s in order to check in with these historians as I ask them about the future of Avenus history. October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. 
First up is Greg Howell. Greg has been a jack of all trades, pastor, author, gamer, and of course a co-host on our own Avenus Pilgrimage podcast with Michael Campbell. We'll get to Michael a little bit later. Greg was sitting in his workshop at Sacramento Adventist Academy when he answered my call. I, yeah, this is my school. Actually, I teach robotics and computer programming and uh, whatever other tech stuff they need. So this is the workshop that we have been putting together for the last couple of years. I've got a busted 3D printer back there and a CNC machine and all kinds of fun stuff. But you're, you're getting your PhD at, at Regent University, Regent in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Now, I, of course, I've known this since I've known you. I think it, it probably came up early. We met at the Pathfinder Campery, right? Yep. We met at the Pathfinder Campery in an RV. <laughs> I think we went in there to talk or something. And um, But anyways, you're, you're, you're at Regent. Regent was famously founded by Pat Robertson, who's still the chancellor of the university. Yep. Pat Robertson <laughs> famously is this, this – I've been this hardcore – founding member i guess of the religious right uh um, yeah, i'd say him and and falwell and a yeah lot of those jerry guys, falwell yeah. liberty mm-hmm. yep yep and so is there a picture of you and pat robertson together he's 91 no. years old <laughs> i know he actually just stepped down from the 700 club last week big news he just stepped so. down from the 700 club last week last like yeah his last show was just last week <laughs> so the show's been after what like 50 years uh, it's been around since maybe the 80s 40. maybe your late 70s yeah long yeah. time he founded 40. CBN, you know, and um, yeah. I don't, I don't have a picture. I have pictures of him because he would always come to our, our, our beginning of the year convocation, you know, and come out yeah. and make an address to the to the School of Divinity, of course. And uh, so I've never met the guy, but they almost had me on as a guest for uh, the 700 Club one time. Really? Uh, yeah, back during the election, the 2015 elections, uh, there was a lot of chatter going on about uh, Ben Carson. Yeah. And they wanted to know more about him. Nobody really knew this guy, and they felt like they should bring him on as a guest, but they wanted to hear about it. And all of a sudden, there was questions around the School of Divinity like, hey, where's an Adventist guy? Does anybody know an Adventist? And, <laughs> and uh, like, I happened to it's be It's like your, your Adventist friend, like everyone's got to have your, your token Adventist friend. <laughs> yeah, well, my, they, they called me the Sabbatarian around the campus most of the time. So they, uh, the School of Divinity was like, hey, we do have an Adventist guy here. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it didn't it didn't pan out ultimately, but they had talked about you know just bringing bringing me in. I thought, ooh, that would be kind of weird. I've never thought of myself on the seven hundred club, but yeah, right. I mean, because Regent Regent has Jay Seculo, who was President Trump's one of his lawyers during one of the impeach, impeachment proceedings. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He teaches law there, I believe. Oh yeah. So I mean, obviously, like the ties are there between the university and and a, let's just say a certain segment of Washington. Oh yeah. <laughs> So uh, why did you choose Regent? I just have to know. I don't want to spend the whole interview on Regent, but why did you choose Regent? I, you know, it's for very pragmatic reasons, honestly. Uh, they were the only uh, program that I could find for church history that was uh, online or was a hybrid oh, okay. online on campus. Yeah. Every, everybody where else was like either they taught classical church history, which, you know, was all the early church fathers and the Latin side, or they wanted you to come back uh, in person. Um, and I had tried... I even looked at Andrews because, you know, I knew all the professors there, but all of their programs, when I discussed it, they just, they wanted to stay resident only. And so oh, I, uh, I, yeah, I yeah. offered, I'm like, make me the guinea pig. I'm willing to be your first yeah. online. They were like, no, no. And I thought, well, I've got four kids. I cannot go back to a student salary and no insurance. Sorry. Right. So Regents oh, yeah. was my only real option. Yeah. I, I hear you. I, hear, I remember my, my stipend as a sponsored student at the seminary. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I'm married now with children. There's no way that's going to happen. No. <laughs> Malcolm Muggeridge famously said the, the medium is the message, right? Like yeah. that the, the format that information comes through changes how it is interpreted. And I think, oh, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Roland Bainton or something talking about how the invention of the printing press turned authors into authorities. Because right. you're not just finding like a scroll of Cicero somewhere that he wrote and deposited. Now it's like somebody has written something in a, and there's a hundred thousand copies being printed. Of course, not immediately after the printing press, but like eventually, right? And yeah. and there's a big badge on the front of the book, over one million copies sold. So that must mean this person knows what they're talking about, right? Like that must mean this person is someone that I need to listen to because people are buying their book, right? So the printing press helped turn authors into authorities, and that that shapes the way that we look at whatever subject matter they're writing on because. There's a, there's a kind of instinct in us, I think, where if something is popular and widespread, there, there must be some, some more validity to it than just some random, right. you know, limited print run book that I find in a garage somewhere. Yeah. Um, you it's know, like it's not determinative, but I think there's like an instinct of like, if it's popular, there must be some kind of truth in it. Democracy of ideas, right? Yeah. What, what seems to be popular is getting the most he uh, headroom. It's getting the most attention and therefore... Um, the conversation necessarily has to go towards that popular idea, right or wrong. You know, it, it's where the the consciousness of the current culture heads. So yeah, yeah, and you know, on the Avenue side of things, we have um, the the ASTR or Aster, as I like to call. It. I'm the only one I think who likes to call it that, but I just <laughs> think it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> Aster, Aster has released a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of stuff, you know, review, you know, a bunch of periodicals, a bunch of uh, minutes from meetings. I mean, there's books, there's all sorts of stuff on their website. And I realize you're familiar with that. Many other researchers are familiar with that. I don't think most Avenus members are aware that those things are out there. Mm -hmm. They've probably never heard of Aster. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, Especially that acronym of it. <laughs> yeah, I, it should catch on. So David Trim, if you're listening, my friend, Aster, it's just, <laughs> it's better than ASTR. <laughs> or just archives or whatever. Um, anyways, I, I wonder if if more people figured out that all these materials are available online, and not just on Aster, but like Center for Evidence Research, you know, has some stuff out. There's various stuff you can find on the internet. A lot of mm -hmm. resources uh, relating to Evidence history. But I just I wonder how this access is going to change things, right? Because you don't have to be a specialist to to even have gain access to these things anymore. You can just yeah. Google. Right. Will this help the cause of Avenus history in the long run, do you think, where it enables more people to do research? Because obviously there's a lot more to research than we have researchers. There's, you know, we need, we need people on the ground, so to speak, mm -hmm. to, to kind of look into things, study things, make connections, write about things, present things. On the other hand, as you pointed out just a few minutes ago, part of the problem is these, that, that making this information available means that non-experts... Non <laughs> People with, with varying degrees of commitments to uh, rigor and uh, integrity and so on will also be able to do this and present findings, and they may gain big followings and, and end up misinforming a bunch of people. Yeah. But overall, do you think it's worth it that this information is being put out to everybody? <laughs> will it help Avenus history? You know, I think it does. On the, on the one hand, sure, it creates a bunch of new fires that, you know, have to be dealt with and, and, and jumped on, per se. 
Um, and again, I know I sound snobbish by even saying, oh, everybody that talks about this stuff, unless they're a professional, they're just making fires and problems. That's not really what I'm saying, but, but I am saying when, when, you, when you get the information out there to everybody, um, there's, there's tons more ideas that are suddenly possible. And in that is both the, the excitement of possibility, but also, you know, just like you said, the danger of misinformation. Um, as soon as we opened up tours into the, uh, the uh, Ellen White estate, you opened up the possibility of people messing with the original sources, you know, and taking stuff out of the archive or adding things into the archive. That, that is its own, its own messy possibility. I think for historians, and especially for Adventist history, being able to talk about this stuff is actually, is actually giving people the idea that the Adventist church's history matters. And mm. as a church of history, where we focus so much on prophecy and the historical timelines and all that kind of thing, being able to see ourselves in a, in a way that, that still feels relevant um, as part of a historical movement that is still pushing forward and still doing something, I think that ha has huge value for giving people motivation and an impetus to, to, to engage with their church. Um, yeah. I think Adventist history and the opening up of the archives and the, the documents and the sources, it's actually all really positive. Um, yeah. It's going to come with necessary pitfalls and issues and whatever, but it also in gives us the chance to engage in topics. You know, How many people really cared um, about certain Adventist topics until they were hot-button issues again. They were only a hot-button issue because people had access all of a sudden, you know? Right. And, and, and I think finding new avenues to give people an interest in the church and its history and its background and where it's going to go in the future has given that historical, um, uh, historical part of our church a real boost. Yeah. Do you think, um, is, is there something that's missing right now that you would like to see being put online for everybody to access. Like we have the major periodicals, the review, signs, um, you know, signs Australia, the record, whatever. We have all these things on there. We have a lot of books, um, you know, prophetic faith of our fathers, the Froom stuff, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, is there something in there on there that you think is missing that should be on there that people should be able to access? <laughs> you know, I've I've always found when I go into the archives that there's there's so much stuff in there that you can't do it all. Um, the, the judgment call uh, from the, the, the archivists, you know, the gatekeepers of the historical stuff, they're going to have to make those judgment calls, and that's going to be based on a lot of factors like present reality, necessity, budgetary possibilities. They've only got so much time. Even when I was um, at the GC a couple years ago, they were just talking about being standing in line and waiting for the scanners. You know, yeah. having a whole document folio full of stuff, and they're like, "Well, this week I've only got a, a half hour slot to get anything in." They have to make those calls as to what's available, and it's not always just based on should it be or shouldn't it be. It's can it be. Um, yeah, those are those are real practical parts of it. But the the political spectrum and the current day, what's most relevant to the world church, what's relevant to the North American church. I mean, all those those factors are all in there, and I my hats off to them for having to make those hard calls. Um, sometimes they do stuff that they, you know, they, people don't want them to. And other times they don't do stuff that we wish they did. Yeah. If I was poking around, I have my own bias and preference. I'd love to see, um, some of the Glacier View documents. And I know I'm not the only one. Um, there's a lot <laughs> of stuff in there, but there's considerations taken into account there too. You know, present yeah. administration, um, has a vested background in this. There's people who are very much still alive that were part of these, uh, discussions or have family members in those discussions. It's whenever we're dealing with 
recent history, we have to take the human element more into account. I'm not worried about Joseph Bates getting mad at me if I publish something from his, you know, personal Bible. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's a different question and a different consideration when I'm looking at this stuff. So I get it. Um, I think I think some of our present conversations could benefit from certain parts of our recent history being opened up more. And I think uh, that that's always a value judgment because some people look at it and say this could help. Others are like, why are we opening up that old tomb? And letting all the the bad fumes out like that's that's unnecessary and it caused enough problems the first time let's not make it more problem right that's a value judgment I, it it just seems to me that we've lost our optimism from the from the let's say the mid to late 90s when it was like yeah let's put information on the web man it's going to topple dictatorial governments mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. having access to information that's going to raise their incomes because they can educate themselves about things and i think we're all just i think far more jaded now about yeah. <laughs> at least we only saw the good side no doubt that good side did did occur i mean it's so helpful so helpful to be able to find all this information online yeah i don't know how many times i don't know if you're like me but it's like you're having a conversation with somebody and you're like oh yeah you know when was that building built then you just pull out your phone oh, yeah. and you just look it up real quick or like what was that person's name who did this and it's like it's yeah. a it becomes part of the conversation but also, I think we, we didn't appreciate the downside of the ability to spread misinformation, the, um, you know, and just how, how difficult it was. We just thought if you just put the information out there, people will come to the right conclusions. Right. And you now have, you look back and you're like, that's so naive. You have no control over the narrative. And that's, yeah. that's kind of why I think, like, it, it really would benefit us if we did more than just core dump info and then we actually, like, attached you know, uh, professional voices to the, the spread of that information. You know, yeah. even if it's just simply, I appreciate how the, uh, the, the new encyclopedia is working where you've got the vetted process, but you've also got to open up enough articles are being published constantly. You know, it's more of a Wikipedia style with some, with some vetting and some, um, just some professional stop gaps, you know, in there along the yeah. way to make sure that good information and good stuff is out there. Um, I, I, there's benefit, but making that transition from just a wide open information where everybody's in the wild west of make it up as you go doesn't benefit us as much. And that's probably part of the, the hesitance that's started to develop since the 90s, right? Yeah. You, you keep mentioning the experts, but well, we live in a day and age where being an expert is a liability in the eyes of a good chunk of the people, whether right. we're talking about politics or even in religion, right? You say you're a PhD. Uh, or you teach at a university in Adventism, and there's a there's a scary minority of Adventists who will just immediately write you off. Oh yeah, you've been institutionalized. You're part of the conspiracy, you know, the, that has infiltrated you're, our church. You're a you know, you're man. just going to water everything down, and you know, mm -hmm. blah 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 blah. Like you're done. Like I'm not going to listen to you because of because of that. And I think that's that's the thing that needs to be reckoned with when we talk about Adventist history is, you know, how how do you navigate polarization? Uh, yeah, I actually used to avoid telling church members that I was working on a PhD um, just because I could tell that they, they responded to me differently or they treated me differently or they just got more su suspicious or intimidated. I mean, I don't know what it was always, but I, I didn't always find that it helped my pastoral uh, influence yeah. to, to talk about it too much. So... Yeah. Yes, the, the, the being any sort of an expert in it, I, I find you can be a 
a closet expert by, by at least just giving good information <laughs> and good opinions and good tips and tricks as you go without emphasizing the, the, uh, the educational you know, pedigree so much. I, I don't pass around my CV during elders meetings or anything. That's ridiculous. What? Um, but in the end, it can help in just what I do put out there, you know? Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, there's this, maybe if you're listening and you're not as familiar with Adventism, if you've just been hanging with us because you're curious about us, um, there's a strong rural populist culture in Adventism. In fact, the, the fewer degrees you have, perhaps in some in some circles, the more credibility you have to speak mm -hmm. about the Bible. And that's just part of the tension that's inherent with Adventism. We mentioned yeah. earlier William Miller and his concordance, right? And that's all you need is you just need right. William Miller and the concordance. But now you have people with PhDs who are who are studying the Bible in Greek and Hebrew, and, and there's an uneasiness. I mean, there's there's definitely an appreciation for that. Um, you know, I, plenty of members appreciate Stefanovic in uh, the Revelation commentary, mm -hmm. you know, that Ranko mm -hmm. did. They appreciate that stuff. Uh, they, they know it comes from a place of deep study and, and scholarship, and they appreciate that. But there's also, just right alongside that, a, a distrust for these things. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of hard to say, we're, as we're talking about the future of Adventist history here, how those, these two contrasting trends, the, the populist side of Adventism and the professional side of Adventism, how those two things are going to coexist going forward. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, they always have coexisted, and that's what's kind of crazy. If you go back far enough, you look at some of the quotes from William Miller in the day when he's talking about how to study the Bible. Uh, he actually says, you know, give me a, a young Bible student who um, has not been trained in the schools of the, the clergy, and he's like, you know, send that guy out there with a Bible and a concordance, and, and uh, he can do good work. But if you send me someone who has already gone through uh, seminary and has, has learned from the commentaries of the scholars, um, he says, I will take him and I will stamp bigot on his forehead and send him off into uh, the nether regions of, of, uh, of someone else's ideas because he can't think on his own. I'm totally, you know, adding his quote there, but, but the sense that you, you didn't benefit from having too much education has always coexisted in the, in the earliest elements of Adventism up until the present. And yeah. I think, I think we, we believe that being a people of the book is our legacy. Um, and as such, uh, we've always tried to maintain the idea that anybody can open up the Bible and hear God's truth. It's, it's a hard one, though, when you start to have those disagreements. And that is honestly why I have kind of focused my dissertation research where I have. I think the way we have studied the Bible and approached the Bible has affected the arguments and the discussions that we have had in the decades since then. Um, the more you have studied the Bible, the more you realize that we have so many different factors coming to us when we're trying to interpret this thing. And there's a comfort that comes from just feeling like I can open it up, read it, and understand it, and now put all of my assurance for my personal salvation or my you know, my, my, my connection to truth, I can just know that that's fine, I'm okay. What mm. usually happens is with more education comes more uncertainty in some areas, mm -hmm. and that's, that's disconcerting to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now you're telling me I can't be sure that what I thought it said is what it actually said. That's scary. Yeah. You know, you're putting people in a place of imbalance or at least in disequilibrium, and they resist that because they want to believe. And having to be able to come to those places where a little bit of cognitive dissonance is still 
okay in my faith. Uh, not everybody does that. Not everybody wants to do that. Yeah. Wow, really well said. Uh, I think we have to appreciate the role of uncertainty in our own faith. Uh, Ellen White in Steps to Christ writes a chapter about what to do with doubt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's a difference between doubt and uncertainty that yes. that people need to appreciate. Um, you know, you may not be as certain about how exactly, I don't know, Daniel 11 should be interpreted. That doesn't mean you doubt the essential truth that that in that God in Daniel or through Daniel is reassuring us that the future is well in his hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. So, anywho, I want to ask you one final question here, and that is this. I'm going to ask this to everybody that we're going to be talking to today. Where do you think Adventist history is heading? I think that Adventist history is heading towards towards a lot of the same places that the larger population's questions seem to be heading. What is our authority? Where do we get our information from? Um, how do we vet the information? Or at least how do, we, how do we approach our own history in a way that is beneficial? Like you, we said before, there's a lot of hesitancy about putting too much out there because it gets misused and thrown back in our faces. But I think Adventist history is slowly grappling with the reality that we live in a WikiLeaks world and there is going to come stuff and if we aren't the ones who are actually putting it out there in a way that seems accurate to us then it's going to get out there in a way that's probably even less accurate and i think that adventist history a lot of historians anyway we're looking at this and saying it's better to put more out there with our own our own interpretations and our own narratives than to just kind of keep letting it trickle out and cause more issues because nobody's talking about it. That's where I think it's kind of heading. Um, I know in working in the archives, it's a constant tug back and forth. Um, more power to the, the, the folks up there at the GC. They got a lot of hard decisions to make. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I do think that the Adventist culture is tending towards opening up the, the old books more, seeing the old recordings, finding the old truths, and having more critical conversations. Um, some people want to shut those down, other people want to open them up, but I, I don't think we can stop it. Just like mm. controversies of the 80s um, opened up the door to questions that nobody really wanted to ask before, it didn't, it, it didn't stop it. The next generation of historians like Knight and some of these other guys were able to ask the questions and make the, uh, the conversations that they did because of the older pushes that were made. And it's painful sometimes, but it did at least open up the church to looking forward a little bit more and asking questions that uh, ultimately helped guys like me when I was growing up in the church. I, yeah. I, I had a lot of those questions and I needed to know that my church was going to have a few answers that made some sense. I needed those kinds of people doing that kind of work. And I think the next generation of Adventists, uh, the kids that I work with in high school, they're asking a lot of the hard questions. And I have to draw on my own resources and my own historical backing to address those questions. And a lot of the stuff that helps is the stuff that sometimes we wanted to hide away. But it's, I think, going to help the next generation quite a lot if yeah. we're able to do it right. Yeah, and if people are worried about how this is all going to pan out, I mean, you look at look at George Knight. He caused some, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he stirred the pot mm-hmm. when he was first starting out. And he, you know, you look at him now and it's like everybody reads his books and they're not, they're not too challenged by them now. I think it's a 
I think it's a, a clear, I don't know, a clear example of how the things that trouble people 40 years ago can somehow just, we, you know, we, we talk about them and then we settle down. We can settle down. Not Maybe not true of every topic that ever comes up, but yeah. we can settle down. And then it's like, oh, why were we so worried about these things? You know, right. the frank conversation, I think, is just something that's got to happen. I, I agree with you there. I think people have been calling Adventism a cult for a long time now, and it's in our best interest to probably be as transparent as possible, mm-hmm. you know, and as reasonably transparent as possible, I should say. I'm not saying we should just dump everything on the internet. There should be some organization. <laughs> there should be some planning here. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I just let people see that we have nothing to hide. And, you know, that we're not afraid of, of a, tackling some of these questions, these, these yeah. troubling questions. Some of them are perennial questions, whether it's plagiarism sure. or you know, the sanctuary right, right. doctrine or whatever. Like there's there's somebody in every generation who, who raises those questions. Right. And, uh, yeah, it seems to be in our best interest to, to tackle those things head on yep. because, as you're noting with the students, the, the, the veneer of institutional loyalty that once was present, that would have prevented somebody from raising their hand in class and asking a question that would be seen as too challenging, that's gone. Mm-hmm. That's gone. Like, people have no problem now just raising their hands and saying, why did Ellen White do this? Yeah, none. You know, was she a racist? She said something about amalgamation. Blah, you know what I mean? It's like, right, right. now you're there. You can't just say, how dare you ask that question? You know, that impertinent question, you go to the principles. Like, you can't do that anymore. That's gone. <laughs> That's and, gone. And, and good, because frankly, I, I, I believe that there is a certain type of reception that we have to think about. When the generations before us were wrestling with their issues that mattered to their time and place, they couldn't have anticipated the issues that were going to matter to the next generation. We have received from them a treasure trove of stuff and of truth and of things that matter. But if we're limited to only discussing the questions and the answers that mattered to the generation two or three back, yeah. we are not going to be able to really address the relevant state of our church today. Yeah, And that's, to me, if we have more information out there, then the people who are actually trying to make sense of it today um, have more resources to do so. Uh, I'm not going right. to be able to give Froome's question and answers, or, or, or sorry, Nichols. Um, I'm not going to be able to give those books out because the questions that they're asking back then aren't the same today. Right. And so I, I can't be limited to those really you know, institutionalized, stayed and true, here's the only topics we talk and here's the answers we give. The questions are changing, and, and to, yeah. to answer them better... We have to have more of the stuff out there. Yeah, and I think the questions are becoming better informed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My high you know, they have more to draw of... on. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why I started getting an Adventist history to begin with, just because I was pastoring and people were asking me all these questions, and I'm like, I don't I don't know why we do things this way. I need to go figure this out. And so, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe if I can pitch Adventist history to any, any uh, pastors or, or leaders who are listening, it's just that, this is a basic working knowledge of Adventist history is a good thing for any elder in a local church, any pastor, any yeah. conference person to have, because you're going to have these questions. They're not going to go away as, no. as and Greg relevant. is letting us know here. Yeah. So I, I did a whole seminar on why learning Adventist history matters for uh, the Northern California Elders Association. And it, you know, it, it, it's, it's received well when people start to realize, Hey, this can help me in my local church ministry. It's good to know why, 
the church has done it this way for so long because maybe the questions they did ask back then do have some relevance. Um, even if it's not exactly perfect, it helps me get there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Greg, we're going to let you go and get on to our next guest. If you guys want to hear more from Greg and his uh, co-host, Michael Campbell, you can listen to the Avenus Pilgrimage podcast or Avenus History Pilgrimage or Avenus Pilgrimage History Podcast. He says it so differently time, every time. I say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Greg, for joining us. Hope you have a great rest of your day. You know what I appreciate about Greg? He'll be the first one to sign up when you need something. He's that kind of guy. And you know what else I appreciate about... <clears throat> you know what I appreciate about Greg? He'll be the first one to sign up when you need something. Okay, I don't know him super well. <laughs> we just met that one time in Oshkosh and we've been texting and chatting ever since. But he just strikes me as that kind of guy. He's like, hey, you need somebody? I'm, I'll be there. If he can be there, he'll be there. And you know what else I appreciate about him? He isn't afraid of making his own path in life. I mean, he had no problems telling me that he was tearing down a Nintendo DS in his lab that day for his students to, to learn from. And he had no problem enrolling at Regent for his PhD if that just meant getting that task done. He doesn't care what you think about gaming or technology or what you think about Regent University. <laughs> he just wants to get it done and do what he loves doing, and I love that about him. Now, someday I hope he and I can sit down and talk a little bit more about information access and about the role technology plays and how we interpret information. I mean, I think that's a great unexplored territory. How does the medium shape the message? How, how might reading a document online influence the way you see it versus having a printed copy in your hand? How might listening to an audio podcast change the way or shape the way, I should say, that you understand or remember Adventist history differently than in classroom instruction? Right? Great conversation that be had, just not enough time right now. Now, this is going to be a very long episode, if you can't tell already. I probably cut about 10 minutes out of that interview with Greg, but I'm not being too severe here. Because this is a party. We're not in a hurry. We're going to let Greg get back to his tinkering in his lab while we check in with my man, Kevin Burton. Kevin has just been installed at Andrews University there in the Center for Avenus Research as he wraps up his dissertation from Florida State. Love, Kevin. I just happened to be up at Andrews doing some research uh, just before he moved in there. We just passed each other like ships in the night. But uh, I did my best, as he's going to reference in this interview, to welcome him to Marion Springs with some baguette, which if you don't know what that is, you need to go to Marion Springs. Everybody in Marion Springs knows what that is. It's the, it's the one stable thing. <laughs> it's the one stable restaurant in Marion Springs that has lasted for quite some time, and it's delicious. And I also gave him some Virgil's root beer, which is my beverage of choice. But we're not going to go down that. Okay, I'm on the road to recovery now. And uh, <laughs> so I try to lead him down the dark side there. Anyways, let's go check in with Kevin. He's no stranger to this podcast. It's just been a little while since we've talked to him. So it's great to have this conversation with Kevin Burton.
All right, now we're going to sit down across from Kevin Burton. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having a chat with me. What's going on, man? Uh, not a whole lot other than just life and work and, and uh, going through fall, but I'm glad to be here and thank you for having me on. <laughs> you're most welcome. It's hard to keep track of you because I feel like you're just, you're moving up I-75 or you, you started like when I first met you, you were in Florida. And then I look, I just blink, and you're in Tennessee. And then I blink again, and where are you now? Yeah, now I'm at Andrews, um, Andrews University in Berrien Springs. Um, I started teaching at the seminary this summer. Uh, I'm, a, I'm now an assistant professor in the church history department there. And uh, I'm the director of the Center for Adventist Research, um, which is here at, in the James White Library. We've got pretty big archive of lots of early Adventist stuff and stuff that goes on uh, even to the present. And so I'm managing that and uh, learning how to live in a new new sort of world and culture here at Andrews. All right. So you're finishing up your PhD, right? Your, your dissertation? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I know Still got that. Still I'm sure that's that. a really sore subject. Like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a fair question that people ask, but I haven't even yet hit the three-year mark, which isn't too bad. And if you think about all the things that have, that have happened in my life while I've been working on this dissertation, I think you can say he's doing pretty good um, because <laughs> I, had, uh, I had my second child. Um, we had a flood in our apartment. We've moved two times. I've started two new, two new jobs. Um, there have been uh, some deaths in the family. Um, there have been other, I mean, I'm not going to list everything, but there's, there's a lot of other things that have happened in life, like major things. And, uh, and I think I'll finish next year, um, before the summer, I'm hoping so. All right. Yeah. What are you writing about? I'm writing on, uh, Adventists and the abolition movement. There's There's a lot to unpack there, but that short phrase can probably be enough unless you want to know more, but yeah uh, there's a lot there (laughs) no i i think that's interesting because i know you wrote an article about bates in the 1830s in particular in his involvement with the anti-slavery society's founding him and his wife yep and uh i I found that tremendously interesting but what what is interesting to me about your work is that you've you've covered a pretty decent range you know from like a pre-miller period to i know you wrote that article in spectrum about ellen white and how uh, she was remembered like uh, on account of her gender and like how being the woman was emphasized more and more and more as like a, uh, like even a woman, you know, it's like, <laughs> can you believe that even women, you know, God can use even women. Um, so I don't know. Have you, I don't know if you've written beyond the the twenties and, and yeah, I think you got like right to the doorstep of 1830 there. Yeah. And- I, you know, I have, I, I start my dissertation in the 1820s. Um, with the rise of the abolition movement. And I, I do that because uh, of William Watkins. And William Watkins is one of the ones who's very influential in converting William Lloyd Garrison to becoming uh, an abolitionist. And he becomes a very famous abolitionist. And then later Watkins becomes a prominent Millerite. And so it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see that and, and start there. Um, but no, I'm, I've beyond my, my dissertation, of course, focuses on the antebellum period before the Civil War. I've done a lot of research on the Civil War itself, and then I, my master's thesis was on the 1870s in a leadership controversy, but I have written several things for classes and done a lot of research that haven't seen much much light yet, 
um, that uh, when I'm done with my dissertation, I expect will turn into some some fruit. Um, yeah. And that that includes stuff on Avendus and the eugenics movement um, mm. at the early 20th century. Um, then I've got stuff on uh, FBI uh, surveillance of Adventism during World War One, which I've, I've shared that mm-hmm. publicly before. So some people know about that. Um, so that's 20th century. And then also I've done a lot of work on Jesuit infiltration conspiracy theory. So that gets all the way up into the 80s, 1980s into the present. And okay. so, um, I, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff there. I, I, I've even got some declassified FBI files that I had to put in a FOIA request and wait like uh-huh. three years for the FBI to send me the stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then they've redacted it and they've taken away things that I can't see that no one will be able to see. But yeah, uh, I've got I've got documentation on that from Australia uh, uh, the UK and then all throughout the United States. So I've, 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 I've gathered a lot of data on that already. So uh, when you talk about a lot of data on that, you're talking about the, the FBI surveillance, not the Jesuit thing. No, I'm talking about the Jesuits. You're talking about the Jesuit thing. I'm talking about the Je- and of course I got a lot of data on the, on the FBI too. I, I, I found a huge treasure trove of, of thousands of pages of, of declassified FBI files on that. But no, I, I've also got FBI files on Jesuit infiltration conspiracy theory. Oh. You, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, like half of the listeners to this episode are like, can we just stop everything and talk about that right now? <laughs> There's these, in the that's juicy. It's fun. It's, you know, and, 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 and yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot to say there. I've shared, I actually did lecture on it in my, in my class, one of my classes at the seminary this summer. And I told them about some of my findings on Jesuit infiltration conspiracy theory, and I think they really liked it. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I find it super fascinating. Um, so, anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we're gonna have to talk. Are, are you are you opposed to us having conversation about the Jesuit thing at some point no. before you're okay? Great. We're gonna have to do that. The listeners are gonna kill me. All right. Well, I look forward to having that conversation. But but right now, I want to talk about the the future of Avenus history. And maybe maybe it'd be helpful before we we move in that direction. Get your thoughts on that. To just talk about where Avenus history is right now. Like, what are the what are the fruitful areas of study? What are the interesting fields that Avenus historians are moving into that are, uh, you know, because I mean, we like you said, it's a it's a it's virgin territory. Mm-hmm. There's not enough Avenus historians to really, you know, to like to be bumping into each other and getting in each other's way. Um, it's a big field. There's a lot that hasn't been done yet. So what are what are some of the interesting trends that are going on lately in Avenus history? Yeah, so, I mean, Avenus history, I think, has been living in a more comfortable place where it's not so apologetic and hagiographic and so forth for several decades. But, um, but we've still, I think we're still hanging out in sort of a conversation amongst ourselves kind of mode. Yeah. Um, but we've got some good studies that have come out. I mean... There, there's, there's uh, historical historical theology that's been done. Uh, like recently, you've got Dennis Kaiser's Trust and Doubt, which is a, an excellent uh, exploration on Revelation inspiration and how those things have changed and shifted in Adventist history over time. Um, and he's corrected a lot of the pre preconceived ideas that we've had. Um, and that's 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 a really useful understanding, especially to launch Adventism into the 20th century, because his dissertation mm-hmm. goes which is published now, um, it went into the 1930s. And so that helps us understand the transition, uh, especially after the years that Ellen White dies and some of the mentality and framework. And, and Michael Campbell um, 
in his book 1919, he he uh, gets into these things a little bit as well. And so so we see more we see some more of that. Um, we see we see more studies and more uh, works done on Adventist missions. Um, mm-hmm. David Trim's mm-hmm. uh, book of Living Sacrifice that came out. Um, especially you're seeing this uh, emphasized in the Encyclopedia of Seventh Day Adventists. Uh, lots of short pieces, but a lot of them very mission focused, which is really helping us fill in a lot of gaps. Um, and that launches us into uh, you know uh, a, a newer, maybe a newer trend and healthy focus on non-America. Mm-hmm. Uh, on United States, especially, and so the ESDA Encyclopedia of Seventh Day Adventists—that's really, that's really trying to help fill in the the major gaps, especially that were present in the previous versions of the encyclopedia, which really covered just the United States. Yeah. Um, but you've also got um, you've also got I, I, I want to plug uh, Stefan Hoshila and Chigamezi Wogu's uh, uh, series uh, Adventista um, uh, studies in Adventist history and theology. Um, that that is a, a an excellent series. Um, the second volume is uh, on the contours of European Adventism. There's a lot of great, great chapters in that book um, that deal with some fascinating things like Adventists who've been martyred, um, Adventists during war and conflict and all the turmoil mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, that's really really fascinating. They've been they've been working on getting one out for a long time on World War One. I. I hope it will come out soon in that series. We've also got a lot of uh, you know. PhDs coming out of Africa and Asia um, that are starting to focus more on their own history some, and so I think that, that we're seeing some more emphasis there. Um, we've got continued uh, emphasis on, on Ellen White. Um, you know, George Knight's still holding down uh, the fort <laughs> um, on that front. You know, he's got... He's got some new books uh, that have just come out, and uh, but they're but they're good. I mean, I love George Knight, and and they're taking Ellen in a little bit uh, different directions and newer directions. I mean, Ellen White's Afterlife, for example, that, mm-hmm. that launches us really into the twenty the twentieth century more, which is good. Um, right. and, and I think that we need to have more studies on on, on the interpretation and, and dealing with Ellen White um, post death. And so I think he sort of launched us there. But there was also Prophets in Conflict, which, you know, did a lot with comparing Ellen White with uh, Joseph Smith. Smith. Yeah. yeah, and the understanding of authority there. Um, but let's not forget Ron Graybill's book, uh, super detailed analysis of her writing process mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. And that came out uh, in 2019. Yeah, uh, Visions so, and Revisions. Yeah, Visions and Revisions. That's a good book. Yeah. Um, but see, there again, like this is launching us, like Knight is launching us a little bit into the 20th century, which I'm glad to see him focus more on in these later books because his general histories of Adventism, they really don't deal with Adventism in the 20th century that much. No, no, it just skates through it. But what gets left out, I feel like, is like, what about Adventists themselves? And, and I know this, this runs contrary to what you were saying. It's like we haven't done enough for non-Adventist audiences. I agree with that. But I also see Adventists in the pews whose ideas of Adventist history are still Arthur White. Yeah, <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's where they still are, so many of them. And it's like, okay, how do we get you out of the out of the, the, the apologetic Adventist history where Ellen White is center stage? It's all about her and James and Joe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and then, you know, whatever she, after she dies, it's all just like, just downhill, I guess. Like nothing, nothing really important or good happened after she died, because she was the star. She's the prophet, man. 
Yeah. And you know, if only we would listen to her, all of her problems would go away. You know, like this is still like so. So people are studying the. You know, Greg Howell is doing his dissertation on the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Yep, George Knight is, of course, in the 20th century, as you as you noted. Yeah. But but people like where are the Avenists at reading these things? Like we write them for yeah. Avenists, but that's not the same as saying Avenists read them. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of them don't. And and honestly, like this is me. What I'm about to say is me trying to to ascertain and figure out, you know, this sort of question or problem. Like I I, I think that I wonder. I'll say it this way. I wonder if. The reason we have Avenists not as interested in our history is because it's hard for them to put themselves in the narrative or see how they fit themselves mm. or how it is relevant to their life. Um, I mean, honestly, I how many people we, we, we write a lot about like theological aspects in Avenist history. That's great, and I think it's needed, yeah. it's important. But how many people and how many people, how many Avenists really care about the theological debates that go on in the church today. I, I wonder. And so I, yeah. if you write on that kind of thing, it's just not that they shouldn't read it. I think they should. But like it's probably just not going to grab their attention. Um, and so if you focus on things that they do, they cannot escape, like political things, social things, cultural things, like <laughs> they're going to get into that. Like if you, yeah. if you talk about how Adventists – come up with haystacks and how haystacks have changed the world, that's going to be a cool thing. Yeah. You know, we saved um, granola folks. We saved granola yes. from obscurity. Let's talk about breakfast cereal. And how, what did we do with that? You know, yeah. uh, you know, but then a lot of Adventists aren't vegetarian now. And so like, if you get into diet stuff, they may like say, Hey, right. I, don't, I don't want to touch that. I, I want, I want, I want my, right. meat. I want my meat history. So no, I'm just so, <laughs> I want my meat history. <laughs> So, so you're saying is uh, we need Adventist history. If we expect Adventists to really read it, it needs to be written uh, specifically on, on subjects or in a way that they would find interesting. So, like, for instance, somebody could write a book right now about Ellen White and vaccines or early Adventists and vaccines, yeah. right? Yeah, that would probably catch people's attention. Yeah, definitely. And, and Merlin Burt, by the way, did write uh, a thing. It's on the White Estate website on Ellen White and vaccines. Just, in, just so yep. everyone knows, Ellen White got vaccinated in her lifetime. You should know that. And she yeah. promoted it amongst her staff to get vaccinated. So. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, people will say, well, it wasn't like this vaccine, you know, that vac, you know, whatever. I know. Okay. It wasn't anyway. coronavirus. This is true. Yeah. So my final question, one, one final question for you. Where do you think uh, Avenus history is going? Let's say in 10 or 20 years, what are we going to know more about then that we don't know about now? And specifically, Specifically, as Desmond Ford files get opened up at the GC, I imagine there's going to be like a like throwing red meat into a school of sharks or something, and like there's going to be uh, uh, some Avenus historians that descend upon there. To, to... <laughs> I won't be one of them. <laughs> you won't be one of them. I will you, not be one of them. Do you no. think that? Do you think you know if it's around 2030? Let's just say 2030. If it if they if this stuff gets opened or unsealed in 2030, do you think it's gonna go, be be marked by a bang or just a kind of a whimper? Like, you know, 50 years afterwards, who's gonna care still? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, you still will have people who were around and experienced that uh, in their lives. Um, I like I I expect my in-laws will still be alive in 10 years. You know, Lord willing, and and their siblings. Uh, 
and uh, people of their generation were all students, you know, that were, you know, maybe at PUC or, or somewhere else where all this stuff sort of exploded for the first time in the late 70s and early 80s. And so you'll have people around, um, but a lot more people will have passed on. A lot of the people that are still living that were there, maybe at Glacier View, there's still some around. A lot more of them will not be here. Um, and it will be perhaps a little bit more distant. Will be, it'll have to be explained to people more, but people talk about it a lot. And I expect that we're gonna have a lot more talking about it and probably some, uh, yeah, some rushing for the archive, I would imagine, um, in, in 2030. I, and I only say, I, I'm, it's not that I'm not interested in it, I am, but like, I just, I, my, my secret, Matthew, for my, own, for my own interest in history, and there's a few people like Benjamin Baker who share this with me, like, we are really drawn to trying to find new things that people just have totally, totally forgotten. Like, mm -hmm. and I, I just, I, I basically have the approach and attitude, well, enough people are going to ride on Desmond Ford. I'll never have to. Like, it's not ever going to be forgotten. So, like, why bother? Um, you know, and so I, I think that there is so much more that we have literally just forgotten that's important, um, uh, really important about our past that I, I yeah. think more worth my, my time. And, yeah. and, and I just think that that just fits with things, you know, that I'm interested in. And then I also just... I think maybe I have some of the gift there. I, I try to I like to try to find things. It's just a fun challenge for me. So yeah. I just try. Yeah. But, okay. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. And, and but other people are gonna definitely be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think do you think something similar will ever happen with say women's ordination? I mean, not that it was a, uh, a controversy on the on the scale that Desmond Ford was when that happened. Uh, I mean, this is kind of more of like a, a long burn than a. The, yeah, you know, then a, a one instantaneous kind of controversy. Well, I think we're going to have, I think that we're going to have uh, over the next decade and hopefully longer a new focus on Adventist women because we really have never had one. Yeah. Um, there, like you look at the Adventist Pioneer series; they're all on men, almost all on white men. You look at uh, all of our history, and really, the only woman that's ever talked about is Ellen White. Um, very few other women ever get any time of day. Um, you might get a little bit on, on Annie Smith. You might get a little bit on Harriet Smith. You might get a, you know, a little bit here, yeah. here and there, but like, there's not all. So like women's ordination specific, specifically. Yeah. I, I, I think that this is still going to be an issue for people. I mean, it's not as hot at least now as it used to be, um, probably cause COVID has kind of tampered it down, but, <laughs> um, Hey, Hey, we can be afraid and argue too. Okay, don't cut us down like that. <laughs> We're Adventist, Okay, we yeah, can do yeah. two things. <laughs> I, I tell you though, I, I and I think that people will be interested. In, and there are things that are going to be found out. I mean, I just recently found uh, a, a woman who was an ordained. Not, uh, sorry, let me take the word ordained out. That, that's a Freudian slip. I found a woman who was uh, an elder uh, of an Adventist church in Battle Creek in the 1930s, and. You know, that's pretty interesting. You yeah. Know? Um, but I think what I would like to see, honestly, is I would like us to stop trying to focus on that singular issue in, in history and say, let's look at what uh, Adventist women actually did do. Um, and so, 
Mm. Let's let's focus on that um, because they did do lots of things, and those things are significant. I mean, one small thing which I I, I think more people need to know about is their really a crucial role in the rise of our tithing system, systematic benevolence. I mean, that was basically entirely run and done by women. Um, Ellen White's a de facto editor of a, of a paper that is unfortunately mostly absent from our archives called The Good Samaritan. And she's, you know, collecting money and clothing and all sorts of stuff to help the poor. Um, and, and that includes helping ministers. I mean, our, our systematic benevolence and tithing, the way it was done initially, was not, a, was not just to support ministers, but, but anyone who was poor. Um, but specifically ministers too, uh, often who were very poor. And so, but women were the ones in their local areas, like going around and like getting this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. And I, I would like to see more done on that. Sure. Um, and and sure. so forth. Okay. All right. I know I said the last one was the final question, but here it is for real this time. What do you, what's one person in Adventist history you wish we knew more about? You mentioned Annie Smith. Very, very promising young woman, unfortunately, died way too soon. Mm-hmm. So it, that, that's what brought the question to mind. Like, is there somebody in Adventist history you're like, I wish we knew more about this person, because this was a really interesting person. It could be Tchaikovsky, could be whoever. You know, I, I, okay, there, there are many. There are many. But if, if so I'm going to stay on the theme of women. The, the, the one person I'll choose off the, off the cuff here is Adelia Patton Van Horn. Um, I named my daughter after her because I find I find her to be so interesting. And I, and I say I, my wife and I, please understand it was not just my <laughs> paternal decision. Um, no, but we chose to do so because she was an amazing woman. We liked the name, but, but she also was an amazing woman. Um, she was basically an adopted daughter of Ellen and James White. She actually takes a family photograph with them. James White performs her wedding ceremony and says he feels like he's given his own daughter away. Um, but she's also the first woman who holds an official position uh, in the church. She starts out as an editor, uh, editor of the Youth Instructor in the, in the uh, 60s. And then also in the 60s, she becomes the treasurer of the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association and treasurer of the General Conference. And so she, she actually played a, a pretty serious role. And one of the fascinating things about her that I like to share is that Ellen White writes a letter that a lot of people have a really hard time with. I actually find it fascinating and really, really insightful. And that is when, whenever Adelia Patton Van Horn, she's not, Van Horn is her, her, her married name, just for people who don't know. So she marries Isaac, Van, Isaac Doran Van Horn. And uh, so she becomes uh, Adelia Patton Van Horn. And, and Ellen White writes her a letter after she gets pregnant and basically tells her, you shouldn't have gotten pregnant. God wanted you to work for the church. Why are you having kids? And I find that so fast. Some people look at that and it's like, why can't she have babies? What's wrong with that? And first of all, anyone should know, like, Ellen obviously has no problem with people having babies. They have babies all the time. But what's fascinating is that she had seen how she believed that God had specifically called Adelia Patton Van Horn to be a leader in the church like she had already been doing as a general conference officer, right? And so she believed that she was being called by God to work in that capacity, and Ellen did not think that she would be able to, to do all the things that God had, was wanting her to do if she had kids. And so that's a really, I mean, if you look at feminists today, 
and fem feminism today, that's a really radical stand for Ellen to, to take, um, you know, here for, for this case. Because she's basically saying that, you know, sex and childbearing, they limit women. And so God does not want you, Adelia, to be limited. And so, you know, Ellen was a very, very balanced person, but she could be, she could be really radical and then she could just toe the line. And, and this is one of those moments where you see her being quite interesting and radical um, uh, in, in a way that's fascinating. But, but Adelia Patton Van Horn, nonetheless, even though she uh, has kids and all that kind of stuff, she, do, she still is, is uh, an important person in, in missions and so forth out in the West in the United States. And so I think that she deserves a biography. I would love to see one written on her. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I'd like to know more about her myself. And I think that other people would find her super fascinating, but there you go. That's my one go. choice. If you're listening and you're a writer and you have an interest in Adventist history, get it done. Okay. Get it done. Kevin wants you guys to get it done. I, I, that sounds fascinating, man. I appreciate your time, Kevin. I know you're a, you're a busy man. You're still, I guess, kind of getting settled in there at Andrews and the routine and all that. I know you've got some Virgils. You've been the baguette de France. You're good. Thank you for that. <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome. All right. I got an email from George Knight while we were talking, so I think I probably better go see what's going on with him. Kev, thanks so much for your time, man. All the best. your daughter after someone in Adventist history? Yeah, that's commitment, guys. As I've said on this podcast before, one of my favorite names in Adventist history is Walcott Hackley Littlejohn, and I challenge you guys to name your child Walcott. Fun fact, Kevin Burton is uh, one of our experts on Walcott Hackley Littlejohn. So anyways, I don't know why I didn't, you know, hopefully if he if he wants to have more children, then um, he'll reconsider putting uh, Wolcott Hackley Little John back on the map, okay? Next up, I sat down with George Knight for a talk about Avenus Publishing and what it means to leave a legacy there. This was a chance for me to make up for the first interview I did with him at the very, very beginning of this podcast when uh, I did an interview with him and I was in a noisy museum in Chicago. The audio was terrible. People wrote emails to me years later and they said, please send me the audio so I can restore it. And I'm like, I don't have it. I, it was a horrible situation. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't mean to be in the museum. I had planned it and forgotten I was supposed to be there. And so I just, I tried to go find a quiet corner, but you just can't. I mean, those, those museums in Chicago are just made out of solid rock. And there's kids running around and their voices echo around through there and I didn't have the equipment that I have now that might have mitigated that a bit. And uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm trying to atone for that right now by having a, a better interview with George, who is a lot of fun to interview. You never have to worry about dead space in an interview with George Knight. He always has something to say, and he says it very well. He's not the most technologically sophisticated person out there, so it took a little while for us to get this thing going. But believe me when I tell you that he honestly, genuinely sincerely doesn't care what you think about him and technology <laughs> he just doesn't care leaves that up for other people he still writes out his books by hand people by hand and his 
very, very wonderful wife types those up and uh, gets those to the publisher. So it's fun to talk to George. Let's go talk to George. Adventist history still matter in 2021? Well, I guess the big question is, does Adventism matter? Uh, that's kind of a basic question. Uh, as we drift through history, and as we look at what, we're pushing on to 200 years and not so long uh, for the um, 200th anniversary of Millerism, uh, more and more, it looks like uh, a lot of us want to become just good evangelicals who keep the seventh day. And, uh, you know, that's probably all right, but that's not what Seventh-day Adventism is all about. I would say that history will always matter to Seventh-day Adventists. If we take a look at the biblical model, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are rooted in history. and. Um, the same basically follows with Adventism, uh, rooted basically in the apocalypse, uh, Revelation 14, first angel, second angel, third angel, second coming of Christ. Um, and uh, Ellen White herself certainly believed that history mattered. Uh, Life Sketches 196, which we all know, that we have nothing to fear for the future except that we should forget the way that the Lord has led us and that's tied to our prophetic history, our place in history. So yeah, I believe that history will continue to matter uh, for those uh, who, that is, if Seventh-day Adventism wants to remain Seventh-day Adventists or just want to become some kind of nice evangelicals uh, that keep the Seventh day. So the apocalyptic nature of Adventism is essential to what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, right? Yeah, we're rooted in history, whether we like it or not. And history is what has propelled us to be the most widespread Protestant uh, denomination, really, in the history of Christianity, uh, unified denomination. Um, as I like to say, there's only two Catholic churches, Catholic meaning universal, the Roman Catholic and the Adventist Catholic. Uh, we truly have taken this commission to take the three angels' messages to the ends of the earth. That's it. That's right. Fair enough. Now, you've, you've had a very long career. You started off, I believe, in, in writing about education, right? Education and Adventism. Yeah, actually, uh, I was trained as a philosopher of education when I went to Andrews. I had no intention of ever, uh, well, of, of, of teaching church history. Uh, mm -hmm. I had, uh, some people know, I had a little intermission. I left the ministry in 69 and had no intentions on being an Adventist anymore, but I got converted to Christ and got my Adventism baptized about 1975, went to Andrews at 76. Meanwhile, I had done my doctorate in the philosophy of education. So I went to Andrews and uh, taught, in, taught in what became the School of Education for nine years and taught both the history and philosophy of education. And that's where my actual um, historical um, 
work began in Adventism because all my PhD students, we didn't have enough sophistication in philosophy, so they all did it in uh, Adventist history. Mm. Uh, I had uh, three degrees. I had a BA, MA, and BD, which equivalent to, well, actually a beefier equivalent to the MDiv. Um, so I had a good, strong theological background. Um, and uh, when they opened up a PhD program in Adventist studies, uh, I chaired more PhD dissertations probably than anybody else around, period. Um, and uh, they invited me over. Mm. The church history department, the seminary. That was 1985. I went to Andrews in 76. Okay. Okay. So 1985, when you started in the church history department, my question is, how much has Adventist, has the study of Adventist history changed since you started until now? Uh, are scholars asking different questions? Are they asking, in your opinion, better questions? Are we focusing on, on something different than we used to back then? Or how has it changed over your career? Well, we ought to be asking different questions. There are different levels of historical study. Uh, the first level, you might say, is getting the descriptive facts. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were you know, we weren't too interested even in that. We were in, more interested in apologetics, our first historians. And then we decided, well, we better get down with the facts. And we did a pretty good job for stuff around uh, 1844 and eight, 1888. And after uh, Ellen White died, history disappears. It kind of, Adventist history kind of went into the sand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After Ellen White, everything is, is just epilogue, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, of course, we couldn't really adequately do the descriptive until we had an archive a system of archives, which is an ongoing development, but it started about the 1970s. And so the first, the first level is basically what happened? Uh, and then you can ask you know, questions about why did it happen this way rather than that way? Uh, but as you begin to build a now, oh, by the way, uh, one of the changes has been, okay, we got to move past 1915. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people like Michael Campbell, Gilbert Valentine has recently read a, a, written a book about uh, the, the massive theological administrative struggles in the 50s and the 60s. I'm talking about the 1950s and 1960s. We're hoping to see that published before too long. Mm. Uh, and is working on a, a biography of a uh, Edward Heppenstall, uh, the Pioneer Series, which you know, now has a new, well, we're co-editors right now, but Dennis Kaiser is becoming, will be the new editor. And we're beginning to look at uh, mid 20th century characters as well as early, early pioneers. So one change and a needed change is we've got to move into the basic facts of the uh, 20th century and the early 21st century and some of us have been kind of working on that, but we got a lot more to do uh, to fully see just the descriptive data. Uh, once you've got that, then you can begin to deal with, uh, with higher level, or I should say more complex level of interactions uh, for what this means socially um, uh, and many, many other aspects. Um, we have not, you know, for example, we've never done, an, this is off the cuff, I've thought about it for a long time, an economic history of the Adventist mm -hmm. Church. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, now Doug Morgan and others are, are and uh, uh, 
have uh, been, been taking a look at the power of laity in creating change in the racial dynamic. How do these sociological interactions take place? What is the dynamic of power mm. in the Adventist church? Um, and uh, how does that play out? Uh, I've been kind of playing with that through the uh, Roman Catholic temptation. And, and I should have, my latest, one of my latest books, I should have called The Mormon Temptation the temptation to misuse Ellen White. Of course, the uh, Roman Catholic temptation is to misuse administrative authority. But when it comes right down to it, there's something deeper than that, and that is the issue of authority in the Adventist church. How does one attain that? And, uh, you know, basically, how, is, how has it been used? Yeah, I, th I think Gil really did a wonderful work in his Prophet and the Presidents in helping me understand the tension between this the kind of administrative authority of the church and the prophetic the charismatic authority and how those two kind of keep each other in check should and, should should and, and this is what we're different from the mormons not all yeah. of our administrators want to be different because the mormon president was also the chief prophet right and that would be a nice combination in adventism just think about it <laughs> I'll mention any names. <laughs> Annual council is going on as we record this. So it would uh, make it would make life simpler if the chief administrator could also be the chief prophet. Yes, it would. Proceed both 19th century prophets and biblical prophets. That would be a neat combo. <laughs> uh, under those circumstances, I would I would be running for president. <laughs> There you go. Now we know what it needs to take here to get this done. Listen, well, you, you mentioned the Mormons and you mentioned uh, archives and things like that. I want to combine those two things in this question because when I was last at the GC archives, they were talking about a tour that they had taken uh, the Mormon vault or whatever, which is like in a mountain. And they were describing it as just very state of the art, you know, impressive organization. They had plenty of manpower and resources to organize this thing. And, you know, at the GC, they're, they're only uh, indexed down to the folder, not to the individual pages. So we don't know what's on each page. You can just find a folder and hope that what you're looking for is in there because they just don't have the manpower. They don't have the budget, these sort of things. Why do you think that is? Because for a church like ours, where history is of paramount importance to our identity and our direction, why do we not devote more human and financial resources to, to preserving this history? Yeah, well, let me just talk to the Mormon situation first. They have a, a little different situation in the sense that uh, uh, they don't have the massive clergy expenses that we do. Uh, it's a different setup, and uh, they have more expendable funds, and they have a different purpose for, for history. But anyway, to be an Adventist historian, is a, that's, a, that's an oxymoron statement. Our focus is on mission. Uh, we should not be here. <laughs> yeah. We should be not be having this conversation. Yeah. Our goal is to be in heaven, not to preserve our past. Yeah. And that's our mission. Um, however, <laughs> since since uh, time is kind of has a nasty habit of not ever coming to an end. <laughs> Even Ellen White in her own lifetime realized we better start saving this stuff. Yeah. 
And uh, that became really the core of the first Adventist archive. Ellen White saying, send me your letters. Time is not stopping, and I can't remember what I said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, we come, we come, and then uh, uh, her, her son, Willie White, and then Arthur White, and they, and they got this archive. And But, okay, that's all right for the White estate. They got a lot of business out there. And then suddenly, you know, in the 1960s, we began to get, uh, you know, we had to have accreditation. We had to develop historical people. Um, And uh, I don't know exactly how it came about, but we sensed that after, what, 1970, okay, 130 years since the the disappointment, that uh, maybe all this history might have been important and uh, we better get it organized. And so the GC establishes an archive uh, a decade before that, when I was a student at Andrews University at the seminary. uh, uh, The, uh, I mean, let's put it this way. We weren't interested in Adventist history. I never had a course in Adventist history. Uh, and uh, in fact, I really didn't have one in my entire education, three, three degrees from uh, in Adventist uh, theology. And uh, oh, I had one that was a joke called Studies in Adventist History, but it, it, nothing ever happened. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I can't even, it's a joke to tell you what happened. But anyway, uh, we weren't interested in our history. There was no uh, Adventist studies program that was not even thought of. Uh, the main thing is you could defend your past and uh, the best person at doing that happened to be F.D. Nickel. Uh, wow. And he, he got some very good reviews from non-Avenists on uh, Midnight Cry and things like that. But anyway, by the 1970s, I think, I'm not sure how much uh, something like Life Sketches 196 played into it, that we shouldn't forget our history. But anyway, there was kind of the idea that, man, we got all this stuff. Maybe we ought to get it organized. And so when I went to Andrews, that's where I started out on this diversion, um, not having ever studied Adventist history, uh, I had to write a paper and somebody said, well, we're starting an archive. I said, well, what's an archive? And uh, they said, well, come on over here. We got a room and there was a little dark room with a pile of about 10 boxes in one quarter, corner. And that was Louise Deteran took that over and developed an archive there. And of course, since then, we've had Loma Linda, Avondale, places around the world have established Adventist archives. So there's been a growing consciousness of it, largely not because I think we wanted to do history, but because it's become important because time doesn't stop. Yeah. And we're still here. Yeah, and it seems to me that if our focus is mission, at some point, a knowledge of how God has led in the past is instrumental in supporting that mission. I would totally agree. <laughs> it, I think it's absolutely crucial. Yeah. So it's, that's, that's the reason I wrote the book, uh, The Apocalyptic Vision and the Neutering of Adventism. Yeah. Uh, if we forget who we are, you know, maybe, maybe we're a big hoax. Well, it's important to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can't be kind of historical orphans. We didn't just pop down and appear in 2021 and we can go any direction we want to go and be anybody we want to be. We have a we have a past. We have a heritage. 
heritage matters. It has to do with the, the, the nature of language, which, which I call connotation words. If you take a look at uh, what happened in uh, liberal Christianity and liberal, liberal, liberal Protestantism in the United States, let's say in the 1920s, they kept the name, uh, you know, Christian, but they dropped out the virgin birth. They dropped out mm -hmm. the second coming. They dropped out miracles. They dropped out. By the time yeah. you got finished, you can call it Christianity, but you've changed all the definitions. Right. They're no, they're no longer rooted in history. Uh, and one result of that is that uh, liberalism eventually lost its way. Unfortunately, sometimes you get an overly, overly conservative reaction, which also loses its way. And evangelicalism has been trying to figure out who they are ever since. Mm. Yeah. And, and Adventism goes through the same dynamic. Yeah. We can be in all three angels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Babylon, that, that, you know, and pretty soon you've changed all the definitions and then you wonder what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I joke that you know, in a typical Adventist church, country church or something in the United States, they may not understand what the sanctuary message is, but they'll still call for your head if you deny it. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> this, yeah. Is the, this is the dynamic we're living with right now. So it's, it feels like a hollowing out of Adventism in a way. Yeah. And, and you know, you raise the sanctuary issue. I, I just like to say, I think we've always reversed the polarities. We look at the earthly model and think we know everything that's going on in heaven. Uh-uh. Mm. It's a parable. Mm -hmm. You know, read the book of Hebrews. It, it uses the word parabole. It's a parable. It's not everything that's happening in heaven. Uh, and uh, we tried to, you know, uh, over mechanize it and therefore broke down our own system sure. because of a false hermeneutic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just part of Adventism, right? Like with, with Uriah Smith's Daniel Revelations, like we're going to understand every nook and cranny of every verse in the Bible, right? Like we're going to dive into Daniel 11. We're going to, we don't, we don't just do very well saying, hey, just take this for what it is. It's a, it's a metaphor, it's a parable, whatever, and just be satisfied with that. It's like, no, 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 no. We are going to mine this thing to death. Yeah, and, you know, I, I take a look at Daniel 11. It's pretty hard not to look at it because we got so many people not only delving into it, but swimming around in it uh, as a full-time occupation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are parallels at time with Daniel 2, Daniel 7, sure. uh, uh, Daniel 8, and and, and then there's parallels, but there's a lot of stuff. I'll tell you what, if I have to understand it, I'm cooked. But the big picture, I think I've got. Yeah. And I know where the big picture is going, and I think I know where it came from. Absolutely. And uh, I'll be frank, this is one reason I'm an Adventist, because it, it was rooted in factual history, by mm -hmm. and large. Sure, sure. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, foundational chapters in our Adventist experience, and, and ought to remain so. Yeah. Let me let me shift gears here and talk about publishing because you you you're, you're you've written a number of books that have all done very well in the Adventist publishing world, and you know I think the the question I have, especially is is I see some of these younger historians who are rising up through the ranks like Kevin Burton and Jeffrey Rosario and others. Well, I see ABCs closing. I see people reading less and less today. How is it a historian or a a theologian can get their ideas to Adventists today. How do you disseminate these ideas today? Yeah, yeah, there's several different uh, aspects of that. I, I just kind of put something a little to one side of the question at the beginning. The first thing, at least in, in my Adventist history writing, was to try to explain the church to itself. 
um, if I had another life, I would try to explain the church to the rest of the world. And that's where a lot of our historical writing is going right now. Right. And uh, whether it's out there to explain to the rest of the world or to Adventism themselves, we've still got the same problem. Basically, the membership is not overly interested in reading. I think that, uh, as you intimated, has gone downhill since I began to, uh, when I first uh, began to write uh, for the church broadly. In the well, particularly, uh, let's see, I'd say the 80s, people had a very interest, uh, very good interest in reading about 1888 and all that kind of stuff. And the reading, I just look at the seminary students I had over the years. The interest in reading definitely went down. They're going to get more and more of their information from blips and blops and podcasts and stuff like that. Um, uh, and uh, the printed page will not go out. The trick is always to get people to read it. Uh, many years ago, I've written four daily devotionals, and one of them I wrote was called Lest We Forget. I very seldom ever have uh, doubts about my writing. But, and my wife does my typing, uh, computer illiterate. And uh, so I write it by longhand. She writes it out. And about, we got about one and a half months into that daily devotional in the history of the Adventist Church. And we looked at each other and we said, is this really a devotional? Uh, you know, and so I sent it off to a review and I said, look, at you, you guys kill this thing if you want. Um, you know, I've got serious questions. And I said, no, no, this is, and that, that turned out to be the, the best selling book I've ever read <laughs> across all languages. And, you know, it just, it just exploded. Yep. And people wrote me, oh, oh, it was so exciting that I read the whole thing in one day. It was so exciting. I read the whole thing in one week. Why don't people do more of this? I said, I've already written 12 books on the topic. <laughs> I read them. <laughs> but I divide it up into 365 bite size segments, yeah. and people swallow the whole thing without chewing. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's wild. Like to get, I always say that any idiot can write a book, and it's a little more difficult to publish them. It's terribly difficult to sell them, and it's almost impossible to get people to read them. Yeah, and this is not a new problem, but I will say that there are some changes that have taken place. One is the uh, move away from concerns in Adventist history. And maybe that's just because we just continue to live on and on and on. I mean, exist as a world on and on as a church. Um, that that's part of it. Uh, but the outlets, uh, we you know, we used to have. When I became an Adventist uh, sixty years ago, we had three North American publishing houses. Yeah. Then we had two. Then we had one. And then we had uh, you know fifty or sixty or seventy ABCs, and now they're dwindling. And uh, you know who goes to them? New converts and old guys like me. Uh, you know, uh, back in the early nineties, although I'm not friendly with electronic stuff, uh, I, I kept trying to urge our publishing houses get a mailing list. That's going to be the future. That's the only way you're going to advertise, and nobody did. And uh, now. We are where we are with a collapsing ABC system. On the other hand, there are uh, things on the horizon that excite me. And one of them is the ache and, oak and the acorn. Mm. Uh, 
basically the publishing arm of the uh, Pacific Union Conference. And they are doing a lot of stuff that uh, cannot be done by Pacific Press for political reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. They need to speak to the whole church. At any rate, Pacific Union, the Oak and the Acorn is basically putting out some good historical material, um, as well as uh, other types of literature. Yeah, I, I think, that, though, that, with, that's a bright spot on the, on the horizon. But yeah. it's always been how to disseminate the stuff, how to get people. And that's people say, well, you've got these titles, angry saints, my gripe with God. But the first thing to do is you got to get people to pick the book up. Yes. Or want to know what's in it because I buy books online. That's something I can do online. I can buy books. I can... <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I want to read about it. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, right. So you got to have a title that at least people want to pick the book up and open it up. And then if you can't catch them on the first sentence in the first paragraph, forget it. They're not going to look at the second paragraph. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, but how this has always been the problem and it's becoming worse. How yeah. do you people to pick up a book how do you get them to buy it how do you get them to read it yeah i mean the abcs weren't just there for for distribution they were there for discovery and even if you put these avenus books on amazon which is a very convenient way to buy them how am i going to find avenus books i mean the chances of me coming across one on amazon is just nil so yeah. that was always nice about camp meeting or a trip to an abc somewhere at andrews or gc or whatever is you can just look and say, what, what's changed in the last year? What are these new books? What's going on with, with some of these authors that I've been tracking through my Avenus experience? But now it's like, you know, I don't know. I have to find them on Facebook and hope they talk about it or something. Uh, this, this, this is the, the problem that I was sensing in the early 18, I mean, I'm a historian, so <laughs> the early, early 1990s, that you have got to get massive mailing lists hundreds of thousands of names out there so that you can put this stuff in people's face. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many times every day I get something from Barnes and Noble about the latest thing. It doesn't yeah. cost them anything more to send it to me than it does to send it to a million people. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great way, you know, and you know, I don't, I don't buy everything I see, but I, you know, it's okay. Latest book that's important in history. Ah, good. I'll check that. You know, we need a clearinghouse mm. and we needed to begin to develop that while people were still buying Adventist books where we had, uh, you know, you could use all kinds of gimmicks to get names and, you know, and, uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. We have, for a guy that's a electronic dinosaur, uh, <laughs> I know how it could have been done. Sure. I mean, it just seems like your writing career was there was this perfect span of time where you were writing these shorter books, easier to read books, accessible to everybody. I mean, you know, Froome wrote some good books too, but they, I mean, you know, they're long books, they're thick books. Like you're writing very simple books, very short books. You can churn more of them out precisely at a moment where where publishing is doing very well. And then it's like you cross the bridge and then the bridge blew up behind you. And it's like, you know, everyone is going to follow, like we got to find a new bridge here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's something we have not uh, developed a lot of ingenuity in, in the, uh, in the uh, Adventist church. You know, we got the annual council going on. This would be a nice time to say, okay, now, uh, how is it we can, do, we can share mailing lists 
uh, is it ethical? How do we do this? Uh, because there's a lot of mailing lists out there. Sure. Ministry has a well-protected mailing list. Uh, I've used it, but I could only rent it. And they did the, you know, there's all kinds of mailing lists out there, but the publishing house doesn't seem to have access to them. Now, the uh, Pacific Press does send out a little thing. I get it and I see, oh, you know. Yeah. I haven't seen it lately. I don't know if I canceled it or not by accident. Anyway, uh, but I looked at it one time. I said, man, that's a pretty good review of that book. It had 500 names. If I read the thing right, there was only about five or 600 names they were sending it to. Yeah. Well, 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 well wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, there's yeah. 20, you know, let's just take North America. There's, you know, roughly a million names. Yep. Uh, yep. Why can't we reach 300,000 homes? Yeah. You know, the mailing lists are out there. Do we have any interest in getting out our material to our people? Or are we going to be just so many special interest groups like Ministry Magazine or Signs of the Times or, well, Signs of the Times is a little different. But anyway, there, there are, you know, there are lists out there, but we haven't developed any synchronized approach. We yeah. love organization, but we don't extend it to places that it might count. Yeah. That's true. I mean, some of these, some of these independent or supporting ministries have got this figured out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how I got on some of their lists, but man, I get stuff all the time, full color, you know, great photos of things that are going on in, you know, yeah. that they're doing, they know how to do it. Yeah. And even, uh, even if you take a look at the Adventist review, uh, it, it, it had, uh, I don't know what the circulation is now, 40 or 50,000. I'm going to tell you what, it had that back in the, eight, uh, the 1890s. That, yeah. was half, that was half the population of the chair. Yeah. yeah. I mean, now the Adventist Review, I appreciate what they do, but they're not really scratching the surface. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot that could be said about that. You know, the review was the hub. It was the bulletin board for the church from, from 1849 or starting then, you know, onward where it's like, that's where you're going to find your information about what's going on. And that's where you, it was Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. It was must read. Yeah. It, you know, and if you take a look at the kinds of stuff people were sending in and they published, nobody would publish that stuff today. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. No I kidding. Mean, now who's Ellen White to speak against checkers. I understand she carries a board wherever she goes. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's Twitter. <laughs> that's, that's how i feel about your lest we forget book i mean it's basically literary twitter i mean more than a hundred and whatever characters they let you have in twitter i don't even know but that's basically what it is just these short little bites yeah yeah and you know um you're right about one thing i did realize early on that the market was changing i did four books in ellen white meeting ellen white reading ellen white ellen white's world and walking with ellen white about 150 pages each Mm -hmm. They sold really good. Mm -hmm. I would have made one 600-page book and still be on the shelf. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's a different world out there. Well, it is. And I don't think people realize how many Avenus books from the very beginning until well into the 20th century, they typically were longer books. And and you've, you've really... I don't know if you just intuitively picked up on shorter attention spans and, and you know, declining reading times or something but you hit that at just the perfect time i think to be readable yeah and and there's another thing uh matthew that we need to recognize here and that is if you take a look at Adventist his, historically 
we published nice big books early in the 20th century and they had footnotes mm -hmm. and then from about 1960 to the late mid 80s we published little 140 page stories without footnotes at the very time that massive growth was taking place in the number of college graduates mm. And that came to a head, actually, when I published uh, Myths and Adventism. I sent it in, I think, in 1983. It was published in 85. And uh, it was heavily documented. And uh, the publishing house wrote me, and they said, we don't have a market for this kind of stuff. Mm. With all these footnotes. Mm -hmm. And they said, it will take us seven years to get rid of our first printing. Well, seven months later, they came out with a paperback. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's just part of a shift or what, but since that time, we've become friendly to footnotes and scholarship again, but we lost a lot of our reading yeah. audience by who by that time had turned to Erdman's and IVP and Zondervan and Baker and all these other outlets. Yeah. We may, you know, we, we, we lost our interest in meaty writing Mm -hmm. largely yeah during the very period when the academic uh expectations of our people were increasing yeah i i think that bears out i was reading a letter it was by ray cottrell i think it was in the 1940s or 50s when he was writing this when he basically said i don't know of a single scholar who has ever converted to adventism because we don't write books for them yeah yeah and, you know and if it's true then it's true now uh, I mean, less true in a sense because we've got Andrews University Press. We've, we've, we've got more academic publishing now, but it was true yeah, up Andrews, until that point. Andrews is a, is, is a great outlet. They've done a lot of things. I've published several things through them. In mm -hmm. fact, I used to be the press director. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, But that that's another one, along with Oak and Acorn and others that mm -hmm. are good. And, then, and those two are not the only ones. Good scholarly outlets. Yeah. Yeah. But once again, like with Oak and Acorn, I've been after them for years. Can you just put up a catalog on your website? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm glad you put this stuff out. Yeah. I, I, I find it by accident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, even an, even an email newsletter for some folks, you know, I, I get them from publishers you know, Zondervan or whoever I get it, man, Accordance. I have that Accordance software. Man, I get an email from those guys like every day. Come buy a new commentary. Come buy a new, what you got? 50% off all the time, constantly. You yeah. know. Anyways, let me let me shift to a one final question here. You can change topics a bit. In 23 years, we're going to be commemorating the 200th anniversary of the Great Disappointment. That I have a hard time getting my mind around. Yeah, but my question is, how should we feel about that occasion? How should we celebrate it, commemorate it? What should that be like? Well, it should not be a celebration. <laughs> <laughs> it should be a, it can be a, a commemoration. And I think we should have uh, pay attention to our historical markers. If you watch my writing career, you know, I plugged into 1889, uh, Centennial 1888. My Miller work first came out in the sesquicentennial. Uh, my work on organization of the church, my history of that came out 100 years, you know, 1901, 2001. I think we ought to do these things. Mm. Um, and we, I suppose we ought to put their meaning in perspective. I remember it was 1988. 
um, I had been called in to, by Neil Wilson, president of the General Conference, all the General Conference officers, and all the union presidents in North America were there. And uh, so I'm, I'm supposed to make this statement about what 1888 means. Well, my first statement was, we didn't have six, six million members, which was a massive growth over the 1 million worldwide when I, when I came in in 1961. Um, but I said, these 6 million members are not a sign of our success. They're a sign of our failure. Hmm. And I could say the same thing today with 22 million or if we had 120 million, you know, uh, the, the meaning of Adventism, we should not be commemorating these things on earth. We ought to be in heaven. Yeah. Uh, and, but as, as time goes on, we get focused on issues that are, have nothing to do with mission and are often counter mission. Just take the administrative energy and expense that has been used in trying to limit the number of Adventist ministers. That mm. is, cut out the female sector. Yeah. And to discipline, discipline those who have ordained these people, um, realizing that ordination is not a biblical word in the way that we use it, nor is it a biblical issue. It basically means to appoint. God has blessed your ministry. Therefore, we're going to give you this public recognition. Great, great. I mean, why fight about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I, I'm happy that if we got, let's say, let's just say 10,000 male preachers in this country. I'd be happy if we had 10,000 female preachers in addition. That'd give us 20,000. Right. But no matter what, we've only got so much money. You bring this whole group of people together to, to study ordination from around the world. They meet over how many years? They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then you hide the stuff under a bushel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If, you know, I wrote a book. I wrote a minute speech at the 1900 General, 2000 General Conference session. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, that's exactly the way I would approach things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, you're either going to be serious about this is mission or we're going to get just sidetracked into uh, machinery. Yeah. And, and, and counting what we already have. You've probably heard me say, Matthew, that uh, all the trouble began in Adventism. We learned how to count. <laughs> Boy, do we love numbers. Yeah, and the, and if you can't count it, it doesn't it doesn't have any value. Yeah. And it, the it, the truth is, those things which cannot be counted are the most important. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. you're a pastor. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I I was just doing an episode on the Revised Standard Version and how Adventists reacted to that in 1952, and I saw an article explaining how many spools of thread were going to be used in these Bibles, how many, you know, how much cloth, how many, you know, and I'm thinking, of course, that's an Adventist thing, you know, like how much yeah. raw material does it take to print these Bibles? If they were stacked so high, they'd be up, and I'm thinking, really, that's what we're concerned about. <laughs> yeah. We love yeah. our numbers. We love them. Yep. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Dr. Knight, for your time. Appreciate it. We'll let you go. 
Okay, my friend, you have a great day. George Knight is such an Evanist legend. <laughs> He's so fun to talk to, and it is a blast to get him uh, on, on on Zoom or however it is that you can get into a meeting with him. It's it's wonderful. He's one of those Avenists, I think, who makes you feel hopeful about being an Avenist. Does that make sense? What I think a lot of Avenists don't realize about him is that his greatest contribution to this church might just be in the way that he has invested himself in supporting other Adventist historians. The way that he has taught students, including PhD students, the way that he has used his influence to, to further the work of Adventist history unselfishly, Right? He's not just worried about his own contributions. He's, he's, he's pushing other people forward with him. I think that's a big part of the legacy that he is giving us right now. Next up is Doug Morgan, who we interviewed not too long ago on this podcast. Doug is working on the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists at the moment and has just done tremendous work in helping us see how Adventism relates to the larger cultural context, whether it be his book, Adventism in the American Republic, or his latest book, Change Agents, which talks about how a group of black Adventist lay people managed to challenge the church to do better, and uh, and it paved the way for black Adventists to run their own conferences. So let's check in with Doug. How you doing? I was telling George just not too long ago that we're 23 years away from the 200th anniversary of the Great Disappointment, which is insane to think about. Uh, but I, I guess we've been studying Ellen White for a long time now. Is there is there really do, do we anticipate any surprises in what we could possibly learn about her at this point? Uh, my own view is that we're really just getting started. Mm. Uh, I don't know that I, I think with uh, every all the sources have been that we know of have been open now for for a few decades. So I don't know that. Uh, although <laughs> you never know the unknowns, but I, not that I would anticipate any bombshells. But um, I, I think that uh, we, we really are, you know, and we, we, we could discuss this back and forth, but understanding her in context and her story mm. um, and, and her writings w w within the framework of her story, her leadership uh, efforts, um, her interactions, um, I, I, there's still a tendency to say, well, sh we have a statement here and then a statement here. As this, there's kind of these cold propositions. Now, you know, we've been talking for, for decades, emphasizing context, but still, I think that, um, uh, for example, if you, if you look at Gil, Gilbert Valentine's work in, like in, in his biography of, of Jane Andrews and also pr the prophet and the president's, mm -hmm where he's really getting into her interaction with elders Olson and uh, Irwin and Daniels. Uh, 
there's so much Mm. and 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 i can sort of verify this just by seeing unpublished letters i mean it's not that they're great revelations but just understanding her humanness and how everything is shaped by interactions and sort of power relations um Mm -hmm. i i to me there's a lot that remains Mm. now terry amott's biography i anticipate will be you know a a a big stride forward but we really don't do we have a, a really good historically um sound biography of ellen white mm. i mean i think if you put georgia knight's work collectively together you could say yes but um and you know there's there's prophetess of health but I think um, anyway. Um, <laughs> it's hard to just throw providence of health. I'm out sorry, there. Ron. Number. I don't mean to be dismissive, <laughs> but you know that that's and I. It's the opposite, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have an enormous respect for it, but it's not. I don't think he would yeah, claim that it's a fully well-rounded biography. Of course. Um, and uh, Jonathan Butler has been working for, for for off and on for quite some time, mm-hmm. and I anticipate he'll have. Uh, an outstanding biography too, but I think we, you know, there's still good stuff sure. to come. How how revolutionary or yeah. So so what you're seen. saying is is to maybe to visualize it this way, it's unlikely we're going to find anything in the in the in the breadth of her story in the sense of we're going to find out she went and visited China or something that we didn't know about. We're unlikely to make a discovery there. It's really about going deeper through the material that we yeah. that we do have about her. We might find, of course, some, you know, I don't know, a county record or maybe we find some letters in a in an attic, you know, that were uh, you know, I don't know. Somebody's letters that they'd written and they'd talk about Ellen White. We might find some kind of color, I guess, to the story that way. Unlikely to be a big bombshell, but really it's just about going deeper. And that's where you see a lot of the growth that's gonna right. come. Yeah, yeah. Um in the in the uh, book um Ellen Harmon White, American Prophet, uh, you know, the multi-authored yeah. book. Um, Graham Sherrock has a chapter in there entitled Testimonies, where he does this type of thing. He, he, he puts um, a t- uh, somebody relatively familiar. It's from the 1850s where um, the one woman is accused of uh, saying a bad word that, 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 that rhymes with which and... Um, you know, it, it it's known it's in Testimonies Volume One, but he puts it he 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 puts it into a story in a way that I think is is fantastic mm. and um, yeah, there, yeah. Uh, that should be exciting though I I think for people because yeah I think people know a lot about Ellen White but it's it's just it's colored by. Uh, the legend of Ellen White, if I can put it that way, right. it's it's colored right. by all these things that that they grew up hearing in in Arthur White's volumes. And I don't want to take anything away from Arthur or you know, any of those folks. Um, they were doing the best they can. I'm, I'm sure they could at the time. We've got access to more things now. We we are also our primary goal is not to to be an a, a apologetic resource. You know when we do history, um, but. It seems that people are. I imagine when these books that you mentioned are going to be are going to come out are are going to just say, you know, I thought I knew Ellen, I didn't know her as well as I thought I did, just in in a positive way, 
you know, she becomes yeah. more of a real person. I think you 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 said, yes. uh, yeah, and that's needed because you know Ellen White, the champion, Ellen White, the legend, Ellen White, these you know the visionary, whatever, are, are all fine portraits of her. But it seems that when we focus on them to the exclusion of of just Ellen White, the real person, the historical Ellen, that's what we'll call it. <laughs> uh, we we miss out on something. We miss out on something. So we'll we'll put a pin in that. Do you know when some of these books might be coming out about Ellen White? These these biographies. I I I can't say for sure. I uh, uh, Terry uh, Amot uh, has is writing in the Pioneer Biography right. series, and I understand that. She, you know, it always happens, so it's, it's like almost the norm. But uh, something comes up, uh, the life happens, put mm -hmm. it that way. And so she had a significant delay. But but uh, she, uh, along with uh, Ron Numbers, uh, and I think, and then Gary Land, the, the late Gary Land, were the key figures in pulling together uh, a conference uh on Ellen White in Portland, Maine, hmm. in 2011. They got a major grant for it, pulled in Adventist and uh, non-Adventist scholars, and then that led to the Oxford University Press book, uh, Ellen Harmon, uh, White, American Prophet. And uh, so Terry has a chapter in that, and she's published articles here and there. So it's it, it promises to be outstanding, uh, and uh, hopefully it's, uh, it's uh, on the near horizon. Um, Jonathan uh, Butler, uh, he, in a way, in, well, in s some significant ways, was the inspiration and mentor for me. Uh, and I think he's a fantastic writer, perhaps the best that we have. Uh, uh, but uh, he, he works very carefully, and he had a detour uh, away from Adventist academia for uh, a few years. And now he's j getting back to... Uh, working on this uh, biography, and he also, has, though he's published portions of it, I mean, related portions in uh, uh, articles and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't. I don't have an yeah. inside track on the particular timing of either two, but uh, hopefully not yeah. long. <laughs> well, you know, Aphanis, if we're good at anything, it's waiting. <laughs> so... There you go. <laughs> oh man, yes, I was sir. talking to Kevin Burton. And one of our previous conversations here, and he was saying that he wished he knew more about Adelia Van Horn. Uh, as somebody in Adventist history, he was, you know, I just wish we had more material about her. Uh, is there is there somebody or some period in Adventist history you particularly wish we had more information about? Well, it's kind of paradoxical in the sense that uh, as we have entered this era in which the, the, the possibilities are, are vastly expanded through a, a full-text searches online mm -hmm. and so forth. And you're able to pick up um, uh, stories from the like the back section of the review that maybe you would overlook, um, but they're rich, or newspaper articles, etc. Even Ellen White correspondence and, and other sources of correspondence all online and so forth. Uh, and that, that has made it possible to illuminate the lives and contributions of, of certain people uh, that have come into Adventism. Uh, now, I mean, they're not all in this particular category, but um, the ones that have drawn my interest for some reason are people 
who have uh, come into the church, but then have some and, and, and made kind of a splash. But but it's been a tumultuous thing. And uh, so actually my, my biography on, on Louis C. Sheaf, I mean, I had the luxury, m- most biographies, you've got to sort of filter things out. You, you know, you can't, uh, you've got too, uh, too much in a sense. But for that, I had the luxury of saying, okay, <laughs> I, I, I need to use just about everything that I can find about him. <laughs> but I, I found that, um, that, you know, there were documents that were referred to that were frustratingly missing. So paradoxically, that, that's one. But also while working on that, I noticed that there was a, a man by the name of John A. Brunson, who was a contemporary of uh, Sheaf and, and came close to being his uh, oh, uh, collaborator uh, in mm. uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and it's an interesting hypothetical. I digress here for a moment, but, you, but you'll understand quickly. It's interesting hypothetical if it had been Brunson rather than Washburn, hmm. uh, which ended up to be a very antagonistic <laughs> sort of relationship. Um, but anyway, uh, Brunson the, uh, is, I mean, I, uh, I was thinking, well, he, he needs to be in the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists because he was, he was significant. I, I found these letters by A.G. Daniels saying, Oh, the greatest preaching at, at, at the conference, GC 1901, Brunson. I thought, well, that's intriguing. Uh, so we could do a little short article on him. But as I got into it, and again, in you, you could go, especially now that the White Estate has put the incoming correspondence, mm-hmm. full text. I mean, it's been there for a while, but I think it's only been in the last few months at least that I've been aware of the fact that you can now search the incoming correspondence. Yeah. And that often that's not only to Ellen White, but it's to Willie White, or they have preserved copies between Daniels and uh, others, whatever, um, as uh, significant leaders. And so all of a sudden, there's like this flood of, of, of references to Brunson. And, and so I discover that he was the son of a, of, of a Confederate um, war uh, hero. Not, 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 I don't know whether he was a, a, like given some kind of major recognition, but he was killed at the Second Battle of Manassas. Hmm. And so he, Brunson is a man of the South, he, and he is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In, its, in, in, sort of his, in a sense, it's glory days. I mean, John A. brought us. I mean, these names are controversial now because of, of segregation and so forth. But, um, you know, they, they had this high tradition. And, and so he is this lauded and celebrated Southern Baptist seminary graduate hmm. minister. And he joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church through the evangelism of, of George I. Butler, of all people. Yeah. Now, part of the paradox is there that Brunson will become a great champion of righteousness by faith. Um, and, uh, uh, Brunson and I mean Butler loves Brunson, and so does a, do a lot of people in the denominations. Like he's preaching everywhere, camp meetings, uh, you know, uh, teaching, Union College, mm-hmm. Graysville School. Mm-hmm. He's in demand in more places than once. Emmanuel Missionary, etc. Um, and. Uh, so this is amazing. But then it's almost like we have a repeat of 1888 because uh, Brunson makes a very strong emphasis on righteousness by faith. 
and it starts to get too strong mm. for Butler's liking. But then a further paradox in all of this, and I hope it will make sense to you and our listeners without sort of telling a five-hour story here. But, you know, one of the, well, I'd like to know more, because Brunson eventually, after less than a decade, he goes back to being a Baptist, mm. a highly successful yeah. Baptist minister for another four decades. Um, but what? Why? Did Butler, there's some evidence to suggest that Butler kind of drove him away by sort of saying, all right, you must toe the line. You're not preaching the, 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 the landmark doctrines enough. Mm. Ellen White, on the other hand, um, was a little bit more moderate. She did give him some sharp testimony. Apparently he responded favorably, but Butler tried to then say, okay, man, you're going to... Uh, preach the full message w with us now. We really need you to do that. And so he, he may have um, sort of come down harder even than Ellen White. But anyway, mm. I would love to know more. Uh, in a sense, because of these breakthroughs in uh, online research, I mean, I know way more than anybody could have possibly have imagined wanting to know about John A. Brunson. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. I'm trying to cut down this this article so it can be a reasonable encyclopedia piece. But let's say I were to try to take what I've got and turn it into a, a journal article or something. Well, there's a lot significant there, but what's the point? How do I mm -hmm. uh, make it coherent? So uh, I'm left tantalized. I mean, I guess this is a good thing, Matthew. I, I, it's not... Um, all all together, but what that's what, what came to my mind in, in yeah. terms of who would you like to know more about is these people that I've already learned surprisingly more than um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. just un virtually unknown before. But you're left with so many unanswered questions. But it seems that this this gentleman is a is a one of many in Adventism where their star soared across the sky and then went over the other horizon. You know, and it's like, what is it about yeah. Adventism that, that, you know, produces, that attracts, first of all, those kind of people, and then repels those kind of people? You know, and so maybe Absolutely. in studying him, there can be some answers to that larger question as well? I, yes, I think, I think that's, that's really where some significance can be, can be seen. Um, but how to put that together? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it real, reveals so much about the boundaries of Adventism, as you said, the attraction. And then what pushes it away? But <laughs> there's just so much ambiguity right. in sort of lining up those those yeah. factors. But no, I, I agree with you ex exactly uh, that uh, these can be very revealing, yeah. uh, even though they may not have been, you know, uh, prominent for right. a long time. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems. I mean, definitely in that period of the the last decade of the 19th century and the first decade of the 20th you you, you adventism was a place where big personalities could come you know yeah. kellogg and jones were swinging around and of course with ellen white out of out of america jones had kind of free range it seems um and you know it, it, yeah you could be you could be somebody like you know if you're going to join the roman catholic church you're, you're probably not going to be pope you know, you're probably not right. going to be a cardinal. Right. But if you join the Adventist right. Church, you could be somebody of influence. Yes, yes. 
uh, Sheath, uh, uh, well, I mean, he's already a, a well-known Baptist minister. Yeah. He joins the church, and the next week he's preaching at Battle Creek Tabernacle. Yeah. You know, right. so uh, you do see that in the 1890s with both of these gentlemen, Sheaf and Brunson, uh, SMI Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's another one, like, well, it's just too bad that she died so <laughs> prematurely yeah. because it would have been very interesting to see how her relationship with Ellen White developed. And so yes. But, but anyway, that's I, I mentioned that because you, you do have these, you know, uh, interesting pattern of, in the 1890s of these conversions, if you will, high impact, but short-term impact, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. yeah, definitely. You know, and, and even today, it's hard to have perspective on things that happened recently, but, you know, you still have a church, I think, a denomination as a whole that is uneasy with certain types of people, uh, creative people in particular. It's like, what do we do with them? You know, you have that whole mm-hmm. record keeper saga and, and the denomination, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. we don't, you know, we want to give them some freedom, but we're not sure how much freedom, creative freedom that, that folks should have in the church to, you know, and, and you know, I'm not going to say that's that's unique to the Adventist church, but, you know, it seems like we're still wrestling with some of this stuff. Um, it's still a place for yeah. big personalities, but there are rules. There are, there are unwritten, invisible rules of what you can and cannot do as a big personality in the church. And, uh, you know... Anyways, uh, that that would be a fascinating article. I look forward to seeing you know if you can nail this thing down here sometime soon. We'll we'll be happy to share that with folks. Uh, but I, that's kind of what's exciting about Avenus history these days is, man, it's it's like months past, even less sometimes, where I'm learning about somebody I'd never even heard of before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's exciting. It's not just you know Ellen yes. White, Ellen White, Ellen White all the time. It's like we're we're learning about right. all of these these main characters, supporting characters in Avenus history, uh, how they interacted with some historical event that happened, you know, in politics or economics or whatever, social movements, you know, I'm thinking of protest and progress and yeah. Yeah. You know, and that actually, that brings another one to mind. Um, not, not somewhat the same category, but very different in some ways. And that would be William Hawkins Green, who was uh, the first uh, black minister to head what they called the Negro Department. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been a lawyer in North Carolina. Then he moved to Washington and practiced there for a couple of years. And then under Chief's evangelism, he, he, he joins the Adventist Church. Just a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from a woman in uh, North Carolina, not a Seventh-day Adventist, but she's uh, researching... Um, highlights of black history in North Carolina uh, in in connection with kind of a social justice campaign. Uh, I don't have the exact terminology in front of me, but she's asking me about Green because she's finding him to be involved in uh, racial politics, civil Hmm. rights in North Carolina. Uh, Now, this was before he became an Adventist, but that's still very, very significant yeah. because we want to know what type of people became Adventists and why. Yeah. Uh, so there's another one that, um, wow, mm-hmm. uh, be nice to know a lot lot more about. Uh, about yeah, him. absolutely. Absolutely. I do want to shift gears here in this in, for this next question, and that is because I, I think folks who are familiar with your recent work, uh, you know, they— you're focusing on on uh, minority concerns, social justice, racial justice issues uh, with Sheaf's biography and with change agents. Um, 
20 years ago. This is this year is the 20th anniversary of Adventism in the American Republic, published in 2001, of course, which is crazy to think about for me that it's been 20 years. I'm sure it feels <laughs> feels about the same for you. Um, you know, I was telling George, I don't know if we're going to include that in the interview or not, but I was telling George in our last con- in our conversation that you know, I don't think anything that's happened over 20 years would challenge in any way, shape, or form anything you wrote in the book, but it would certainly supply you with, with new <laughs> with new evidences for your conclusions if you wanted to, because uh, we've had a pretty jam-packed 20 years. If you want to look for some some uh, something to chew on in terms of how the church relates to, to the United States, is, is, that a, is that a subject that you think is behind you or is that a subject you might return to again in the future and you know in a way you've kind of never left it you're you're still working on how individual avenues are relating to uh to the united states in particular uh might you come out with a new edition of that book well it it has crossed my mind and the fact that someone else uh would mention the possibility is an, uh, something of an encouragement uh it's sort of been in the category of a number of, of things that are on the possibilities list, but just haven't really gotten to taking a serious look at. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, uh, it was my perception, who, who knows what the, the reality is, but for a long time, I didn't think that it was really getting very much attention. Mm-hmm. But I think we've had a recent sort of wave of generation of, of, of uh, younger mm-hmm. historians, uh, uh, yourself among them, uh, that have found some benefit from that and found some things to jump off from, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in it. And so, yeah, it's, it's something to think about. Anyways, I, hey, I'd encourage you in that direction because I think – you know, I know it's available. It's for free. It's uh, ASTR has it on their website, I think, right? Yes, as as a PDF. As a PDF, all right. But if you download it, let me just tell the audience: you still need to send Dr. Morgan twenty dollars. All right, so PayPal him. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think that books and articles, as well as, of course, uh, in-person instruction in the classroom are going to remain uh, this main medium for teaching evidence history or you know I was talking with George about the declining uh, reading of books the closing of ABCs and things like that seems to be the, the, the breaking of a bridge between authors and readers uh, or between scholars and, and lay members uh, so do you think that books and articles are still going to be the main way that people teach evidence history to the Adventist public, or do you think there's some new technologies that will that that ought to be utilized? Yeah, well, no, I, I think uh, definitely the latter. You know, I w- I've, I've thought for a long time that um, we need we we need a new Seventh Day Adventist history textbook. Mm-hmm. I mean, Light Bears is fantastic, but uh, yeah. it's twenty years now, and um yeah uh but i think i think now <laughs> probably what i say next will uh, be kind of like those uh, senators last year who were uh uh had uh the facebook uh 
yeah. man in front of them, and they were talking, uh, showing their ignorance. Yeah. About oh yeah. Technology. Yeah. Like, media. how do they make money? But I, I think the next textbook has to be something like a website, and then you've got a print for those who want it, but you've got the electronic version mm. of the text. But it can be dynamic. You and you've got uh, all the social media connections. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I just have this sense, and this is, and that's all it is, is that. Um, historians and people in other fields uh, need to be moving toward um, having their material uh, presentable through various platforms so that they can be accessed um, in by differing people with differing needs. So it's not necessarily just locked into a particular school in one location in one semester. So, I don't know enough about. I, I don't have the sort of the the, the technology to see. Aha! Here's yeah. where here where things going, and, and and to be a, be a step ahead. Yeah. But I just think that, um, yeah, don't know. Especially, uh, I, I can testify even even as a uh, you know, uh, uh, I guess I, I resist these categories. But I'm a baby boomer. I'll have to admit the uh, you know the the uh, that uh, slot. And but I find myself reading books less mm. for good, better, or for worse. That uh, I'm spending a lot more time listening and viewing, um, whether it be audio books, uh, podcasts such as you mentioned. Um, I mean, they're proliferating. Well, such as the one that you do, but. Uh, uh, that um, that these become the medium in, in which I'm spending more and more of, of my, my time. So I, I think that we need to uh, definitely uh, exploit those mm-hmm. uh, or work through those, uh, you know, as much as we can. Yeah. And I, I don't I, I don't think there's any I don't think there's any issue of somehow um, diluting or diminishing the scholarly rigor or you know uh, yeah whatever. Yeah, it 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 definitely it seems like an awful awful coincidence that at a time when I think Adventist historians are doing their best work where we have exciting things ahead of us uh is also a time when Adventists are reading less and ABCs are closing. It's like what a horrible intersection to to find ourselves in. Uh because this material needs to get out there. Yeah. Yeah, just to I mean to Further on on this, I was giving a little interview to a, a, a reading group um, who, who wanted to, uh, you know, the interview authors of, of the books that they're reading, and and, and these were people <laughs> my age and older, uh, uh, maybe some a little younger, but it was definitely not the younger crowd. But they're telling me, "Oh, can we have the can we have the audio book? Mm-hmm. We want to listen." <laughs> Yeah. And I can understand. Yeah, uh, so. yeah it, it seems that in the past, uh, an author could just send it to a publisher and they would take care of the cover art, the distribution, all those things. It, it just seems like right now, at least, um, you, you've somewhat got to sort those things out on your own because yeah. it's it's hard to distribute it. It's hard for audiences to discover it. We. we uh, with you know, you used to go to camp meeting or or go visit an ABC, and you'd see oh, what all the new books are, and it's like, you know, you put your book on Amazon now. Good luck on anyone ever finding it. Right, <laughs> it's, right. It's not going to happen. Right. 
No, I think that's a huge challenge. It really is. You know, so I'm sure I'm sure something will rise up. Uh, you know, oak and acorn, or somebody is going to figure out a, a way to help authors find readers, or in in readers to find books who want to find it, whatever form those books may take. Uh, but we don't seem to have a very effective model right now for discovery and distribution. Right. Uh, no, you 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 hit the. Hit the key there that uh, the, the challenge there. Um, but, yeah. Uh, well, the general conference wants to send a billion copies of the of the great controversy out, so maybe they can they can bundle some other books in with it. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> how do we get on that list? <laughs> yes, well, that, there, there you go. Uh, Good. I appreciate your time, Dr. Morgan. Wishing you all the best in your in your endeavors as at the as part of the team with the encyclopedia and uh, in your own personal projects as well. We'll catch back up with you again uh, before too long, I'm sure. Well, thank you. It's been a, really a privilege and a, and, and a joy, uh, fun experience to talk with you. I really really appreciate your uh, inviting me to uh, engage in this conversation yeah, with you. Anytime. I think it's crazy to think that we don't have a proper biography of Ellen White. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Terry Amott's uh, upcoming work and all the things that we have yet to learn about Ellen White. We know so much about her. And yeah, you know, when Doug said that, that we, we don't really have a proper biography of Ellen White. Yeah, you can add all of George Knight's books together, I guess, and, and form a composite image. But we don't have a single volume biography of her. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing what people uh, are able to come up with. Um, if you if you want to go check out the Avenist Encyclopedia, you can just go to encyclopedia.avenist.org. Really, it's a fantastic resource. Honestly, if you have a few extra moments, just click Browse Articles and start reading a few a day. There are so many fantastic stories in Avenist history that are just unknown except to a few people. But they're there. You can access them. You can go read them. And uh, it's a growing resource. So we're excited about the encyclopedia. Who's next on our docket? Oh, yeah, it's Michael Campbell. Well, it's about time, isn't it? Now, I have some good news about this interview and some bad news. Which do you want to hear first? Eh, I'm going to pretend you said the good news. Okay, the good news is that Michael actually stopped by my office on his way up to Andrews. So we recorded this one in person. Uh, I had a meeting right before he arrived, so I was just rushing to set up the microphones and stuff for us to record in person because, really, I've never interviewed somebody in person for this podcast. So he was the first, and uh, that's awesome. The bad news is that I'm a doofus, and I forgot to check my settings. <laughs> so I think I think all of this is just computer audio. I never, I never turned the microphones on, for lack of a better word. I mean, it was all plugged into the soundboard. I know you don't want to hear all this. It was all plugged into the soundboard. And, and went into the computer to to record, but I forgot to set the computer to listen to the soundboard with the microphones attached to that. So the computer was just like, I'm just going to use my own speakers and my own microphone. Ha ha ha. So it just it was like a perfect storm here because I could hear Michael and I just fine uh, through through the soundboard, but the computer just wasn't getting anything from the soundboard. So. 
My bad. Just after I was talking about atoning for George Tonks interview in a museum. Okay, it's not that bad here. So, anyways, I apologize for that. I've cleaned this up as best as I could, but don't let the audio challenges distract you from the fact that this is a great conversation. Because it sounds like a great book. Here it is. Thanks a lot, Matthew. I think you teach just fine, but like, who's going to pay, right? Because everyone that was like, we'll go into a STEM field. Don't go into things like journalism or history. Heresy is much sexier, so I'll be the heresy hunter. Do it. Yeah, you can be like Dog the Bounty Hunter, but for heresy. Right? <laughs> Do I detect a little Pelagianism in your theology? <laughs> All right. We have Michael Campbell sitting across from me. Literally, this is the only interview where somebody's actually sitting across from me in person. You are driving through Peoria, Illinois, where I passed her. Michael, why are you here? I can't resist the temptation to just see Matthew in his native habitat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> well, hey, it's, it's been a lot of fun to collaborate with you. And I'm on my way to Andrews from Southwestern and have a good friend that donated a whole bunch of books on early modern history for my wife. So I'm driving our car and it's going to come back fully loaded uh, with books. So hence, rather than fly, I am driving and this turned out to be just perfect uh, stopping point for lunch and I thought man I gotta gotta look up my good friend uh, Matthew so yeah well here, here we are here we are you are husband of the year because I think any any husband who will drive the car from Texas to Michigan to pick up books for her like not just pick up books but load books yeah 1500 books 1,500 books. <laughs> that is a hero, my friends. Bring me through my education, so it's the least I can do. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we we have some things to talk about. And do we? We have some things to talk about. First of all is this novel idea that we were just banding about, about a professor who pays their way through life by going from town to town teaching history. Uh, Netflix, wow. uh, if you're watching or listening to this right now and you want some original content, Michael and I are ready to talk. We yeah. can make this movie. Come on, Netflix. It can be done. Let's get some let's get some money on the table here for this just groundbreaking. I mean, why make Transformers nine or Fast and the Furious ten when you can make this movie right now? All right. Well, with that said, while Netflix is considering the offer, I thought we could talk about the the state of Avenus history right now. What are some fields that are being talked about? You know, so maybe something that's new that hasn't been that aren't being studied thirty years ago, forty years ago, fifty years ago. Like, what's going on in Avenus history, and like, where is this field going right now? Yeah, great question. I think what I see is there's a lot of creativity that's happening in terms of the field overall. Uh, in the, you know, there's a couple of different waves of amethyst historiography in the 19-teens leading up to 1919 Bible Conference, which is kind of my wheelhouse. You have several historians who um, are first kind of generation of historians, and they kind of disappear for the most part. You see a resurgence of amethyst historiography in the 1970s uh, with uh, people like Don McAdams and Ron Numbers, Ben MacArthur. Gary Land, others, a kind of a whole new generation of historians that kind of challenge the church, mm. uh, some more provocatively than others. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, that kind of is the second wave. And then in the late 1980s and 1990s, you have George Knight, who's kind of picked up the mantle. He takes some of the best elements of Adventist historiography of, of the, you know, and, and, and what he is a genius at is taking um, some of those historical methods, but doing it in a way that's less confrontational and kind of re-evaluating, reimagining uh, the Adventist past and popularizes it. Uh, and, yeah. and his great contribution, I think, is training a whole generation of Adventist historians. Um, and I'm one of them. He was my doctoral advisor, uh, among a number of others, that have really helped to open and shape the field. Uh, he's let out in a series of biographies, as well as his own books, and then training a generation of students uh, that have really reshaped the field. So I, I really consider him the dean of Adventist historians, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's that generation of students um, that have really begun to look uh, and picked up that mantle and started pushing in new directions, uh, both re reimagining both um, early Adventist history. Uh, you have, you know, the core fundamental beliefs of Adventism. Yeah that a series of dissertations have looked at. But then also in the 20th century, you have people like Julius Nam, my good mm -hmm. friend that was just a little ahead of me there at Andrews, who looked at questions on doctrine. Mm -hmm. We collaborated on a 50th anniversary conference together. Yes, yes. And, and Greg and I were talking about, all three of us were talking about that. Yeah. We were all there in the same place at the same time. Can you believe it? But we didn't know each other. I don't know if you knew Greg at that point. I didn't. You didn't yeah. know Greg? Yeah. No. And I so, didn't. I didn't know either of you. I was just at seminary and yeah, no, walked that was in. my that was my brainchild actually. Brilliant. Julius and I had become good friends, and I sent him an email one day and just said, "Hey, Julius, the 50th anniversary is coming up. What do you think?" And he said, "Let's do it." Okay. Now, if if planning that event was somewhat controversial, oh yes. are, are you ready to plan <laughs> the 50th anniversary of Glacier View? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Should we head back there? Yeah, I don't know. That's 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 a little bit. The closer you get, uh, it's it's more sensitive. But I, you know, I remember uh, people saying that you know questions on doctrine, this 50th anniversary thing. If that doesn't go well, that's going to be a career ender for you. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness. Like how does what is how does it not go well? Like George Knight lunges at somebody in the pews and starts a brawl. Like <laughs> I don't know what they were expecting, but there's still a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Anxiety. As a, having been a pastor as well, you know, yeah. I'm trying to be a non-anxious presence and lower that anxiety. Yeah. So reassuring church administrators that this wasn't something that was meant to rile people up, but actually be a process of healing and reconciliation. And yeah. I noticed as that conference was going on, I don't know if you noticed, uh, Matthew, but up in the upper balcony <laughs> was a whole series of general conference vice yeah. presidents that were very carefully listening to every word. <laughs> and uh, that whole meeting took place. We had a whole bunch of great papers, I think. Uh, different sides were, you know, I don't know that people, you know, like Colin Standish, Russell Standish, Oh, yeah. um, I don't think they changed their minds any more than someone like George Knight did. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the amazing thing was at the end of that conference, and I had, and this is the pastor, I, I, I had this idea, why not have a communion service? And I don't know if you remember mm. that, Matthew, mm -hmm. but, but there was Angel Rodriguez in the middle with um, Standish and Knight mm -hmm. up front and all participating mm -hmm. in communion because even though we disagree, yeah. we can all be part of that Adventist family together. Yeah. I mean, from a generation that didn't fight over that, didn't have a horse in that race. It's it's really just like honestly, it's been a half century 
Like yeah. really, like I, you know, I understand there's some people who are going to get animated about these things, and they will perpetually be animated. They've got their crusades, but you know, fifty years, fifty years, fifty years, just you know, if we can't meet together in the same room after fifty years, what in the world are we doing? <laughs> that's 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 where my thought goes, right? Like if we can't be civil, if we can't be professional, if we can't be Christ-like with each other. After fifty years, because of a of, of a book that was published, uh, anyways, I don't know. But I'll, you know, for me, it, it's crazy to think that we're a little bit about about ten years away from from the fiftieth of, um, of of Glacier wait, View. Of Glacier View. And the reason why it's so strange is because I think of questions of doctrine being like so far away. Yeah, and it's 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 insane to think it's it's. Almost fifty years. Yeah. I mean, okay, I didn't grow up hearing about Glacier View. I was born, you know, I, I wasn't old enough to remember it. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was something I only heard later on as I as I became an Adventist as a teenager, and you know, whatever people had some opinions about it and all that stuff. But to to think that I mean, Des just died not too long ago, and to think that fifty years is approaching relatively soon. And then as I've interviewed some of these folks, these these historians for this episode. We, we've talked about how we're 23 years away from the 200th anniversary of the Great Disappointment. It's true. I mean, 23 years. Uh, it's a hard thing. Like, we talk about 1844 so much. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. And yet, 200 years. Here we are. So I'll ask you the same question that I asked some of the other guests in this episode. How should we mark that occasion, the, the 200th anniversary? Should we just kind of, I don't know, have a prayer meeting somewhere at the general conference? Should we... Uh, do something in local churches? Should we gather at the grave of William Miller? Uh, how should we How should we handle that? Well, historically, how our church has always done it is every 25 years, we have had a big Cause de Celebre. Uh, and, and the 150th anniversary was the first one that I remember uh, at the Miller farm. They had a big tent. I know they did that for the 175th again. Mm-hmm. Big occasion. And, uh, you know, I expect that if historical precedent is any indication, we'll see some kind of uh, Mm. historical event that will mark that. I I hope that not only will there be some kind of physical event, but that there will be good self-reflection. What does it mean to be an Adventist after Mm. 200 years? What what does that look like uh, for our world today? Obviously... There are some aspects that are unique and distinctive, and there's some things that have changed with time. Yeah. Is it, you know, and I think we're going to see in the in the blogs that exist, the Adventist blogs out there, is it something, should we be embarrassed? I'll just cut to the chase, that it's been 200 years. Yes and no. Because in a way... I don't think anyone could have ever imagined 200 years elapsing from, mm-hmm. say, when William Miller was alive. I don't think anyone could have, in their wildest imag- yeah. imagination, seen that. On the other hand, when you look at the grand scale of salvation history, how long were the Israelites in mm-hmm. Egypt? You know, mm-hmm. 400 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so time with God is on a whole different, a whole nother scale. So. What does it mean to be Adventist? There is an eschatological dimension that I think should shape our thinking, should shape a sense of fervent expectancy. 
But on the other hand, it also should change the way that we live. Whether Christ comes or not within our lifetime, it should change mm. the way that we live, how we relate to one another. And, and what I expect to see is Adventism, for example, climate change. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be our greatest challenge of our lifetime and our children's generation mm -hmm. until Jesus comes. What does it mean to be an Adventist mm. with climate change going on, with the sea levels rising? Uh, all of the dimensions that come with that, we have to acknowledge it's yeah. happening. And, and yet the promise of the second Advent gives us hope to know that even in the midst of what looks terrible, sea levels rising, in Revelation 20 is the promise that there will be sea no more. Yeah. So some of these apocalyptic texts that may not have taken on a lot of meaning to the early pioneers, I think as time continues and changes, that eschatology will continue to have a profound sense of shaping the way that we respond to the world in which we live. And so we, re we affirm Christ is our creator, our redeemer, and ultimately who will uh, restore this world and, and put all things right once again. And um, our calling isn't to worry about the exact time of the eschaton. Our calling is to be yeah. faithful. God's remnant people, that term we like to use, yeah. um, it's described always in the context of faithfulness. Here's the faithfulness of the saints mm. uh, or the patience of the saints. Mm -hmm. uh, patience doesn't mean hurrying along. And if God's <laughs> End time people are described as being patient. That yeah. indicates that we have to wait. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know if somebody wants to publish a, a, an article about saying how embarrassing it is to be here two hundred years later, does this mean we're wrong about a bunch of things? And uh, you know, I guess it's no more embarrassing than Paul or whoever expecting Jesus to come in their lifetime and it being two thousand years later. Absolutely. Right. I mean, like they face the same thing that we're facing. It's taking longer than any of us expected. Um, taking longer than maybe it should have. And the same thing's true with Messiah. The yeah. arrival of the Messiah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and we're doing the same things, right? The Jews yeah. believe that if, if every Jew could, uh, could uh, perfectly keep the Sabbath, two Sabbaths in a row, they could make the Messiah come. And I mean, don't we do that? As Adventists, yeah. if only every Adventist was perfect and vegetarian, yes. and right. somehow we believe that we yeah. can bring on the eschaton. Yeah, we have those perfectionistic tendencies, and you know, it, it just it locates the burden of progress with ourselves, doesn't it? You mm -hmm. know, it's up to me. Yeah, and, and this is part of our problem is that we're too self-obsessed. So rather than be about how can I be perfect so Christ can come, how about our responsibility is how can mm -hmm. we live faithfully in our communities to impact in the most positive and constructive way possible, living yeah. out the gospel through our lives, through an influence in our communities. And, you know, why is, why, why the delay? I, I don't know, but I have to believe that, well, he will come. And until he does, again, yeah. he calls us to be faithful. And it's, it's an act of grace on God's part mm. that he's extended the time that he has to allow as many people as possible to hear yeah, uh, the beautiful Adventist message that we yeah. believe. I think there's a delay because we drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> if only the Adventists in the world could just not drink coffee for two weeks in a row, yeah. then Jesus would come. Well, I found I'm working on this new 1922 book right now, and yeah. I have a whole chapter on lifestyle and 
There's this great article, Matthew, about uh, in the review, how uh, the reason why Jesus hasn't come is because uh, women are having bobbed hair, short hair, yeah, and wearing high heels. <laughs> you know, the yeah. reason Christ hasn't come is that women yeah. are dressing too provocatively. Yeah, that bobbed hair, you know. It's going to, yeah, it's messing up that at the second advent. Sports Illustrated had a bobbed hair issue, you know, annually to, to really, really shake things up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's we always we find a reason in every generation, don't we? Like, we do. That's the that's the point, and that's part of the beauty of history. Is we self reflect and say, well, what's truly yeah. what makes Adventism Adventist? And too often yeah. we mix it up with our culture, our personal preferences, all of those things that somehow distract us from the core of our identity. Yeah, you know, and I think there's a there's definitely a positive thing to this because it means that every generation is looking. To ask the questions of themselves, am I doing something that's that's setting us back as a people? You know, is there something I need to give up or start doing? I, I think that's a good impulse in Adventism. I, I think the challenge is, is when we take that impulse and we make it a matter of ultimate, uh, you know, like it's entirely up to me to give up coffee or to not have bobbed hair in order for Jesus to come. It's like, no, 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 don't put it all on your shoulders. But too much we make the gospel about us and not about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, well, he did his part. Now it's my turn, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got to carry my cross here by giving up caffeine. Well, you mentioned your 1922 book, which is going to focus, as you said, on lifestyle. It's going to be talking about Adventism and, and the fundamentalism, fundamentalist movement, like as a whole, right? Like how we interacted, related to one another. It's my 1919 work. Okay. You know, when, when, when do you think that's, are you done writing it yet? Are you still in the process? Still of in it? the process, but I'm hoping probably early next year sometime. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, if our listeners don't know, Michael writes like a book a month, so it's not, not you know, quite that good. This seems like it's try. forever away at this I, rate. <laughs> I'm trying to model after George Knight and Tommy Kidd, especially yeah. Tommy Kidd. He he writes a thousand words a day, and uh, if, if so, that's Michael every morning spend a couple hours and and write. Yeah, uh, really though, you you aim for a thousand words. Yeah, but. Uh, What's after this 1922 book that's coming, that should be finished being written in, in about a few months? Uh, you're going to do like 1925. Are we just going to like crawl? <laughs> through the 20th century? Yeah, I'm just going to crawl through the 20th century and you're like 90 years old and you finally get to like 1960. I don't know what's next. Uh, I, I, there's a couple of projects that are in the hopper at the moment uh, that's getting close to being done. One is the Oxford Handbook of Seventh-day Adventism. Yeah. It'll be the deal. first major reference work uh, about Adventism. Adventist History and Theology by a major university press that should be coming out next year. And, uh, you know, it's about a three and a half year project. So I'm, I'm just delighted that that's come together, have a whole team that has rallied and uh, some 40 mm -hmm. uh, scholars, both Adventists and non-Adventists, who've contributed to that. So that should be out uh, some, point, some point next year. I'm excited about that. I think that's going to be a major contribution to um, the Adventist scholarship. Uh, the other book that I've been working on um, is a textbook of Adventist history, co-authored with Ed Allen okay. from Union College, and we have a, we're under contract with Erdman's. Oh, great! Uh, to to have that, so this, that's my kind of next two projects okay. on offer. Going forward, uh, let's say twenty years from now, mm -hmm. let's say let's say it's twenty forty four. Okay, time permits, all that yeah. kind of stuff. We usually say is happiness <laughs> when we talk about the future. Mm -hmm. Where do you hope Adventist history will be? Then, like, what do you hope we will have studied by then, and you know, rather thoroughly focused on? And what do you hope? Right. Maybe what are some new topics, new fields of inquiry 
Absolutely. I, I think, for example, um, George Knight's done and, and his cadre of students, um, which includes myself, have done a really fine job at expanding the horizons of Adventist historiography and studying and describing them. I, I, I think mm-hmm. there's two areas in particular, maybe three, that I would love to see more of. One of them is that I feel still our historiography tends to be too insular, Mm -hmm. that we tend to see ourselves as exceptional. So we tend to write Adventist history as in a triumphalistic kind of way. Here is the story of Ellen White. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to Mm -hmm. tell her story. But very rarely do we ever tell the story of Ellen White across the backdrop of other female figures that uh, religious leaders of the 19th century and early 20th century uh, and doing more comparative kinds of work. And because of that, what's happened is a lot of our Adventist historiography has been insular so that we're writing for church members. Right. And so my dream is to see us do a better job at writing Adventist historiography with that broader contextualization. I'll just give you an example. Desford, since you talked about the 50th anniversary. All right. Right. Let's do this. Yeah. So here we have this incredibly traumatic event of the 20th century, probably one of the most important mm-hmm. right up there with 1919, 1952, with what happened with him. And we tend to tell the story in terms of the sanctuary doctrine. What does that mean? This reassessment, he challenges the church, uh, general conference leaders respond. Uh, but I've I've not seen anything contextualizing the broader what's going on within Christianity in the late 1970s and mm-hmm. early 1980s. Yeah. And so as I've read some of the literature that's going on, for example, Molly Worthen's book Apostles of Reason, uh, several other uh, recent monographs of of uh, the same time period. Uh, one of the things I picked up is that F. F. Bruce, uh, who was Desmond Ford's mm-hmm. advisor, mm-hmm. that uh, one one. A monograph I read made the argument that that all of his students went back to their denominations and caused church splits. <laughs> now, yeah. it gave a number of examples. Desmond Ford's name wasn't listed. But yeah. as soon as I read that, because I knew the context, Des Ford, um, I thought to myself, wow, Des Ford fits within a broader mold or trajectory of something that's going on within mm-hmm. the wider world of uh, a wider contextual world so again, so we've talked about yeah. Glacier View, but we tend to talk about it how it impacts yeah. us and how it split Adventism. But mm-hmm. but what's going on in the wider world of Christianity? These wider pulses uh, that how does Adventist fit within that broader context? Because obviously there is that wider context. Yeah. We just we've yeah. just not spent time to really self reflect on what that means. Yeah, I, I mean I think if we do that anywhere. It's, it's probably with the Millerite movement and the Second Great Awakening. Like, I think that might be the one place in Adventist history where when we begin to tell our story, there's an effort that's made to tell it within the context of these revivals that are happening. But you're right. I mean, like, otherwise, we're just in our own little bubble. And, and so maybe if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is when we tell our stories of Adventist history and ignore how they interact with the world around them, then it tends to encourage that idea that we are exceptional, that we're somehow above history, like we're right. on our own track. Yeah. It's, it's just different from everything else going on in and the world. Not. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not. Like we're, you know, 
I'm sure you're in your... Yeah, I, I uh, still believe this is a divinely called movement that, that, that God had his hand in it and everything else. And I, that's yeah. part of what I love. But we're, we're not like, we, we weren't, we yeah. come out from nothing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, prophetess <laughs> of health. <laughs> I think, you know, if you're going to say anything from that book, you're going to say that, okay, like Ellen White did not invent these health reform ideas. Yeah. Like these, many of them were in circulation in her day, some before she even started writing about them. Like, we don't grow up in a vacuum. We don't. No. Uh, as another area to come back to your question where I would like to see more development uh, has to do with gender studies. I think mm. this relates to my wife's uh, field in early modern studies. She's also working in gender and climate change and doing some really fun stuff. Uh, as, as I've been kind of looking over her shoulder, quite, yeah. a, quite a bit of fun work on gender theory, gender history. There's a lot of amazing stuff that's going on. And I've come to realize there's a huge lacuna there where mm. we have really not studied what it what does it mean for Ellen White to be a woman in the 19th century? Yeah. What, how, how did the women's rights movement impact Adventism? The whole a lot of these different uh, this idea of othering and mm -hmm. and gendering that that has happened and and gender has changed the ebb and flow of gender over time. It certainly changed within Adventism when in early Adventism you have a a lot of women that are empowered in leadership yeah. within her lifetime. But then how hard was it to follow after a female prophet or prophetess is no longer alive mm -hmm. um, in the rise of fundamentalism where suddenly women are eclipsed and, and disappear yeah. uh, within pastoral ministry, within church leadership by the through the 1930s. And I would love to see, I think we're starting to have some serious conversations about race history. Uh, thanks to mm -hmm. Calvin Rock and others, I still think more work needs to be done. Sure. But we've seen some significant headway. But I would love to see a book identifying the history of gender in the wider field of, of gender studies uh, and looking at the history of gender within um, Adventism. I think if we did that, we'd better understand some of the debates that have happened mm -hmm. over women's ordination more recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That. These just didn't happen by accident. These come with a history of their own, longer yeah. stories of, of what's happening. Uh, so I would love to see uh, more uh, more attention to uh, both race and gender in terms of our historiography. Hmm. Yeah. By the time we get to, to 2044, yeah. do you hope then that we have a better understanding? Because I, I think in particular that, that study of Ellen White as a woman amidst other women in her century would be really helpful in understanding some of the advice that perhaps she gave uh, to couples or to women. Yeah. You know, you can understand like, okay, what's what, going on in the world that yeah. she would say this? What, what, what was Ellen White like? Was she a, was she a mother figure? Um, I've noticed. A, a, she was a boss. She was a boss. And <laughs> I, I have a kind of a working theory that some people have had the hardest time with Ellen White, uh, mm. including historians have had their own <laughs> mother issues. Yeah. Yeah, when you know there there could be some uh, some element of uh, psychology there, right? Sure, uh, sure. I, you know, it's how you how you relate to somebody like that. What's yeah. really interesting is that we took this fundamentalist turn. We took this turn where women, as you put it, kind of disappeared from view. Yeah, and um, nevertheless, we have you know that's always kind of been the irony. Yet we have this female prophet, right? And you know that's something I've always chewed on. I, I found the 
uh, another prominent woman who worked for the Ministerial Association. I was reading through some letters yeah. she wrote. Somebody in 19, I want to say 1970, yeah. asked her her thoughts on women's ordination. Okay, so this is not a new issue to people who are listening. It's not like it just came up in 2015 or even 1990. They asked her her thoughts, and she was saying, well, we don't have her side of the conversation, but the other person was representing her thoughts. It, it suggests to me as being cautious against it. She was basically right. saying, we should not do this because the world is doing this. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, that, that seems to indicate that maybe the timing wasn't right in 1970. Mm -hmm. Of course, apparently it wasn't right in 1990, and apparently it wasn't right in 2015. So, you know, when is it right? I don't know. Anyways, but she, you know, and you get to this point, you know, like, here is a woman who works for the General Conference, is a leader at the General Conference, and some of these women, it seems, um, arrived at these positions because, uh, by kind of, I don't want to, I don't know how to put this nicely, but by, but by representing themselves in a, in a male dominated society as people who, they, they kind of, they kind of arrived at power, but also held women back yeah. because they towed those masculine lines. So, so let's talk about that because Ellen White, you know, was she an honorary man? Yeah, right. That's right? The, that's what we're getting at. Yeah. So this is part of gender studies and gender yeah. theory, right? Is this, was she just the exceptional woman rather than actually, right. and then how do we tell the stories of gender, right? Uh, was she just uh, God's last choice because yes. you know, he tried to get a man first yes. twice that didn't work out, so he's kind Mercy. of just stuck with yeah. a woman, you know, which is a very gender, yeah. very sexist kind of uh, rhetoric. Yeah. Right? And Kevin Burton wrote an article on that in case you're listening. I'll, I'll yeah, try to put a link in the show notes. Yeah, a, a great point how, how Ellen White, the interpretation of Ellen White's gender changed, uh, at least it pertains to her calling. Right? Exactly. Like, God even called a woman. Can you believe it? Wow, God can do anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, and there's a third area I want to cover yeah. related to where I'd like to see historiography, Adventist historiography go, and that's in terms of its global dimensions. Global church history is the hot thing right now. Mm -hmm. How, you know, Seventh-day Adventism in North America represents less than 4% of the world church. Yeah. 96% are, and the majority of that are what mm. we call in the global south. You know, what yeah. we call uh, Latin America and Africa, parts of Asia. Uh, that's that's going to be the future of Adventism is what happens in those parts of the world. Yeah. We know Adventist history fairly well in North America, at least comparative. Oh, yeah, definitely. Comparatively. Uh, and what we really need to do is more work on how did Adventism spread to different places. And it's not triumphalistic again, because in some places it spreads, it's successful. Other places it spreads, but then recedes or retreats. Yeah. And so it's not a, a monolith like, you know, suddenly I, I had someone at one point, I wanted to work on a paper of Adventism in a particular country. And here are the missionaries that kind of grew like this. And then, and then they turned it over to the indigenous people. And then it just, uh, the, the narrative was it just took off off the charts. And so I, I pulled up the stats from the Adventist archives and I said, look here, and I printed it off. Here, here's where it grew. It did well. It kind of fluctuated. Yeah. And, and then the indigenous people took over and it both grew and retreated. So I said, how do you explain that? Because both the missionaries and indigenous leadership had both strengths as well as challenges in the history of Adventism in that particular mm -hmm. country. And so, again, it can't be triumphalistic. We have to be honest about those narratives yeah. where we have done well at some in some instances and, and others. We have at times failed, and and just like we need to do that with our overall story, we mm -hmm. need to better understand. And in some places, we've been incarnational and authentic and able to transmit 
our core Adventist values, and other times we've been imperialistic and imposing our culture uh, or Western culture on those places. And then as a result, we have a backlash that happens later on. All of those things, those narratives, and then the theology of our missionaries. Sometimes they would be uh, fairly progressive and open, mm-hmm. uh, those moderate voices. In other instances, we have people teaching last generation theology. Those early missionaries, if they were LGT, yeah. whatever you want to call it, um, those same <laughs> countries today tend to be hotbeds of yeah. last generation theology because we exported yeah. uh, both some of our good things as well as some of our challenges. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you one final question. You mentioned this uh, the need for a global history of Seventh-day Adventism. That's something we've talked about with, with some other guests in this episode as well. Yeah. This is a, a definitely a felt need. I think my question is, you know, people, especially in the States, have grown up with this very linear, very Ellen White-focused, very apologetic Adventist history. Like, that's what yeah. they know. Incorporating stories from China and from, you know, and I'm going to include Australia in that because it's kind of a... It's kind of like Shout a, out to our friends down yeah. there. It's kind of like an Aussie American Adventist history because only you know only because Ellen White was sentenced to to she was there eight so years of hard labor or whatever yeah yeah so <laughs> <laughs> you know they're proud of that like you tell them that it's poor, like Ellen White Ellen Ellen White was exiled yeah. there and they're like yeah she was yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no better place to be exiled to claim to fame that's right. Um, Anyways, so like this Aussie American history that everyone's familiar with, it's right. like when you start incorporating tales from China, tales from Russia, tales from Africa, and tales from South America, and we write this truly global history. Um, right. I, I wonder if people are going to say it, it's going to be hard to, to convince people of it because it's a much more complex story involving different languages and cultures other than English because it's not as neat of a story. Like it's easy to be like, there was this girl, or first of all, the Baptist preacher, but then there was this girl, God gave her visions, she right. led until 1915, then she died. And everything that's happened in, and, in, in six years after that has really just been, we listened to her or we didn't listen to her, right? It's all, it's all epilogue. Right. That's a really simple story. It's a very compelling story. It's a very story, easy story to grasp. It's very interesting because it's just about God's divine providence and this girl who could raise a book an 18 pound book above her head and all that however much it actually weighed um or however long she actually did it but you don't hit me with it yeah that's right (laughs) was it a king james version that's the only question worth asking here there we go (laughs) with the apocrypha with the oh we'll have to go there we'll get matthew Cortman on here and talk about that some more too sometime but anyways um, I think I distracted you. Yeah, you did a good job. You did a good job. <laughs> so, you know, I think my... No, I don't think. My point is, is it seems to be that we're allergic to complexity. We're allergic to nuance. It's very difficult for us. And so... Adventist history is messy. It, it is messy. But, like, I think that's why the members, so many Adventist members, are still... Like, their conception of Adventist history is still 1950. Yeah. Even though we have all these historians doing all this great work, it's hard to, to get right. them updated. So... That's been my question, persistent question in this episode, is how do we get people updated? How do we sell them on the story? It's one thing to write the story, to gather all this information from around the world and write this global history. Right. But how do we get people to actually not just read it, but but kind of incorporate it into their Avenus identities? Well, uh, yeah, we have to train a new generation of historians to be to kind of be that next generation. I tried to work on that a little bit while I was at IS for five and a half years. I had quite a number of uh, PhD students that I worked with that are now um, in everywhere from Chile to 
Mexico to India to Nigeria, uh, all doing work, uh, serious work in Adventist studies. And I, I'm, I'm very proud of, of those students. Uh, many of them are working with the new Adventist Encyclopedia project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I expect and I hope to see more significant monographs uh, that will be produced telling the history of Adventism in those particular contexts. And I think, by the way, when you tell that global story, it can't be just the missionaries came and converted everybody. It needs to be also telling the story of what, what is it like for the people to hear those missionaries for the first time. Um, I, I found a gold mm. mine uh, in my 1922 book. I actually ended up writing almost another book by accident. Uh, sometimes these things happen. I, I, the 1920s <laughs> is the golden age of Adventist missions, right? Yeah. And just as I was collecting material for my book, just mission story after mission story of people that I would like to think I'm fairly conversant with Adventist history of mission stories that I'd never heard of before, mm -hmm. missionaries I'd never heard of before. Some of those missionaries later defected, which is why we don't tell those stories. Yeah. But they still had a great story. So we need to tell all the stories of, of the successes as well as the tragedies and Adventist mission history. And, and one of the most compelling stories I found was a uh, woman who wrote in Chinese and an Adventist missionary translated it, uh, what it was like to be one of the first Adventists to convert hmm. to Adventism in China. Hmm. And so she tells her story of how they had warned her of this, how they were going to try to steal their children, and so they were afraid of Naturally. them. How they ended up building up relationships with the missionaries, how eventually they chose to convert, even though it meant the ostracization of, mm -hmm. of, of themselves from some of their family. How, what it meant to be Adventist as, as one of those early, early converts in China. I think those stories need to be told of, of how did Adventism spread? What patterns can we see? What can we learn? Um, for a global church today where we have such wide representation, I think if people saw, uh, sometimes we have this sort of very negative assessment of missionaries. They were imperialistic. They imposed wearing suit coats in yes. hot tropical areas. I mean, how... Yeah. How silly is that? You know, why couldn't they be more culturally adaptive? Um, and it's true. In some instances, they could have done a better job, but they also oftentimes also gave their very lives mm -hmm. and, and were very sincere about it. And just because some were culturally imperialistic doesn't mean all of them were. Many were very incarnational. Many yeah. were able to um, separate some of their Western culture from Adventist beliefs and, and, and to be incarnational in how they transmitted that message. So we need to both analyze both the challenges as well as uh, celebrate some of the really good things. And I, I think if we could see that more, we would better appreciate the global dimensions of what it means to be Adventists uh, today in the 21st century. Um, yes, as we approach the 200th year of the uh, day of great anticipation. <laughs> there we go. And I like to think that if we can do that, uh, we can better appreciate. So instead of it being, you know, I'm from a certain part of the world. And therefore, I'm against those who are in a different part of the world because they want to do this or that. Or let's just say women's ordination, right? That mm -hmm. it, it, it can feel like there's an us versus them mentality, different different parts of the world based on cultural expectations. Yeah. I think if we could understand those stories of how Adventism is a truly a global movement, mm -hmm. the sacrifice of those people, uh, at the early missionaries, the early converts, uh, and how they work together to help build up the church, that we would better appreciate what it means to be part of a global Adventist family today, yeah. and, and more attuned and sensitive to the needs of others, and prioritizing 
the needs of others moving forward. Mm -hmm. uh, what would happen? What would happen if we, instead of fighting over women's ordination, huh. that that you know those countries and those parts of the world are saying, hey, we this is important to us, and said, you know, we're willing to put that aside for the benefit of those and and other parts of the world that don't see that. And, and what if those other countries came and said, you know what? We have strong feelings about this, but we want to put your needs ahead of yeah. ours. And, and yeah. that kind of spirit of camaraderie, so rather it being putting stakes down as to where I want to defend my position, um, that, that we mm. come back and focus on our mission. I feel I, I'm passionate about that. And uh, in 2026, if Jesus hasn't come, I have an adult devotional coming out <laughs> telling 365 Adventist mission stories. So yeah. that's another that's thing. That's great. Uh, just in the hopper uh, in, in my that's the book I accidentally wrote this during COVID. awesome awesome <laughs> uh, you're not you're not implying that there might have been an Adventist uh, uh, person of some renown who predict who might have predicted that Jesus would be coming around that date huh uh, <laughs> I wouldn't do anything <laughs> no no well you know when I hear you saying we're gonna get going here in a second when I hear you saying though I think it's really beneficial of a, of a global history and what it represents for the church is that a it can remind the Americans and the in the Aussies, but mainly these Americans, that uh, the Adventist Church is bigger than what happens in America. Yeah. Uh, all about us and what we did for the rest of the world. Right. Um, it's good to be reminded of the sacrifices that folks made. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also, I, I would imagine, would empower Adventists who live around the world because, you know, they have rich traditions now that are, in many cases, a hundred years old of Adventism in their country. It's developed. And, uh, hey, you're not part of the uh, an appendix or a footnote in this American Adventist story. You have a rich story of Adventism all on your own, yeah, among your own people. So hopefully that will empower them and encourage them as well. Michael, thanks so much for taking time to join us in this episode. And uh, if you guys want to hear more about what Michael does, obviously you can go to an ABC, that mythical unicorn, and uh, pick up some books. You've heard that some are forthcoming. Some have already been written recently. And uh, more than that, go check out the Avenus Pilgrimage podcast that he co-hosts with Greg Howell. Good stuff over there, guys. Good stuff over there. Michael Campbell is a good dude. His energy and passion for Avenus history is just limitless. His desire to make sure that what we do is professional and accountable to um, the, the standards of our day. And, and it's not just that, but also engaged with the literature, with other scholarship, uh, but also the world around us. And, and that's a theme, by the way, you see through several of these scholars that we've been interviewing here. They, they want to see us more engaged with um, with, with other scholarship that's going on, uh, whether it's an economic connection to Adventism or political or cultural or whatever it may be, they want to see us plugged in more that, uh, that Adventist history is not done in a vacuum, that it's connected to other things, and we need to explore those connections. So, you know, what impresses me, I guess, about Michael is just his, his output. <laughs> Sometimes I think, you know, if I just wrote one article a year... I'd be okay, you know, just to stay sharp, just to contribute a little bit more than just a podcast. Yeah, it it never happens. Michael, on the other hand, just gets things done. He's in a rhythm 
he, he knows his own business. You know, he, he, he was I was talking to him when he was here just off the off the recording about what his schedule is. And like, he's he's got it down like he knows himself. And this is a really big thing about being a scholar, be, you know, being an academic is you have to know yourself. If you're a procrastinator or not a procrastinator, if you work better at night or in the morning, you you I mean, because there's just a million things to do. You got to teach classes and deal with administration, and then someone's inviting you to go speak at camp meeting. Somebody wants you to write a book, and then another somebody wants you to write a book, and then another somebody wants you to write an article. Like you've got to be able to manage yourself well, and, and he does that very, very uh, nicely. So we're excited to see all the things that he's working on, and and his wife Heidi, who is doing her PhD at Baylor. So that's an awesome, it's a PhD couple, and uh, wishing them great success. Okay, we have one final interview here. Coming in at the last minute is my oldest friend in the group, Jeffrey Rosario. Jeffrey is a PhD student at Cambridge in the UK, but you may know him as a resident speaker of Lightbearers Ministries. Jeffrey and I met way back in 2001, working on an evangelistic series on the campus of Georgia Tech. And I remember two things from that event. I remember, first of all, that I was reading at the time... Edward Gibbons' Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Still have that set. And I remember that the Rosario boys, who, who were our leaders, and um, I was a little bit younger than him, probably by about 30 years or something. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, anyways, they had a van without air conditioning. Maybe it had air conditioning, and they just didn't bother to turn it on. They just wanted us all to melt in that, in that Atlanta uh, sun. I, I don't know. But for whatever reason, there was no air conditioning. And when we asked about it, they called it the fluffy stuff. <laughs> said, you guys don't need the fluffy stuff. As if it's going to make you soft and weak. And now in hindsight, you know how you realize things decades later? You're like, just go fix your van, guys. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, love them. And uh, I sincerely hope that they have repented of their sin. So let's catch up with Jeffrey and see how things are going. <laughs> All right. So first question is going to be, what do you think the future of Avenus history holds for us? Yay. Put on your, <laughs> put on your wizard hat. <laughs> All right, Jeffrey. So what do you think <laughs> the future of Avenus history holds for us? I think it holds more Matthew Lucio podcasting for sure. That's the first thing. <laughs> the, 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 first the future is bleak. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know, I, that question reminds me of a recent conference a couple of years ago. It was the I think you remember. You may have even presented. It was the conference on situating Adventist history, mm. and I think the language of of the goal there to me, sums up what the future should look like for Adventist history. And that is situating Adventist history within the context of uh, culture, politics, and economics, and mm -hmm. just the social dynamics. So moving beyond just the textual, right? The, the, the purely theological, untethered from, you know, broader historical context and, and society. Right. I think I think that is what most excites me. That's not to move away from theology, but yeah. it's to be more intentional about making little links. For example, uh, in a recent conference, I I shared what I think is a, a 
a good framework for that, and that's the beast of Revelation 13, right? The lamb-like mm -hmm. beast. And mm -hmm. the point is that it has two horns. I feel like I've been preaching this, you know, over and over again, everywhere I go. I'm like, it has two horns, folks, not just one. It has two horns, right? So the so one horn, right, is religious liberty. The second horn or the other horn is civil liberty. But Adventists historically, both in the pew and probably even, you know, in the academic arena, have focused on the religious liberty aspect, right? I mean, if you and I took the bulk of Adventist literature, books, articles, etc. 99.9% .9 of them would be in the religious liberty aspect or, or horn. And the yeah. civil liberty horn is woefully neglected. So I think the new generation, the new school, the, 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 the fresh meat of Adventist <laughs> historians, right? I think that what's happening is there's more, there's a more gravitation toward the civil liberty horn. So mm -hmm. it would be criminal for us to go any further and not really engage with the history of Adventist, I guess, engagement with government policies, with social dynamics, cultural dynamics that pertain to human rights, to civil liberties, yeah. to civil rights. So I think, I think what does Adventist history in the future look like? I hope it looks like paying more attention to the second horn. And that has huge implications, right? Because when we think about how to make Adventist history relevant, not mm. only to this current generation, your generation, I don't know how old you are, Matt, but uh, uh, you probably just have great skin and you're probably like 70 right. years old. But I use but... the Kardashian oil, <laughs> the bio oil. That works. <laughs> what I think is our shared generation, right? What is more relevant is what does Adventism have to do with the real world around us? Yeah. How yeah. does it connect, right? So uh, here's a shameless plug for you. I have an article coming out in an academic journal called Diplomatic History. I nice. know it's an, ex it's an exciting name for a journal, Diplomatic <laughs> History. <laughs> so it's published by Oxford University Press. And the article, I think it's the first ever full treatment on, on Adventist history in, the, in that journal. I'm covering Adventist engagement with things like international law, mm. American foreign policy, mm. stuff happening in China, Adventists in the U.S. reading, following current events and news about what's happening in China and speaking into how Christianity is represented yeah. by America in the world. So I'm, I'm, I'm engaging there with, you know, international law. I'm engaging with foreign policy. I'm engaging with uh, the missionary movement. So human rights. I think this is the type of history that excites me and that, and that fires me up because it's thoroughly based in theology, mm -hmm. yet it has everything to do with what's happening in the broader world. I, I, we just desperately need more Adventist history like that. If we want the new generation to be interested in, and if we want to bridge mm -hmm. and be, and have something relevant to bring to the conversation outside of Adventist circles. I like that because the implication is that we've done Adventist history as if Adventism walked on this high ground, their feet never touched the earth, right? <laughs> we just traveled from 1844 to now, completely separated from the world, having nothing to do with the world. But of course we did. I, you mentioned, I, I, that article sounds really great. One of the things that in Adventist history that always, that, that still strikes me, is James White's article, The Nation, 
in mm. the Civil War. Like that whole thing is just like, you know, like we love this, but it's not as sacred as slavery. You know, we love this, but it's not as sacred as slavery. And it's like this dude is dropping a bomb. It's incredible. It's he's incredible. Apply that's applied theology to the world that he lives in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and it just goes to show that maybe we'll get into this a little later, but we just need to introduce a new audience to the messiness also of Adventist history. Like mm. you said, you know, you, we, we straight line from Miller to like, I'm here sitting in, talking to you in like Miami, Florida, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like a straight line of Adventism untouched by society. I and mean, that's completely obviously false, right? Adventists in every generation have, have been influenced by the specific sure. time, the specific time in which they lived and the society around them, right? So cultural conditions play in to framing our fears, the questions we're interested in, the answers we come up with, right? The world around us yeah. is constantly influencing Adventism. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm on the last chapter of my dissertation and I'm, I'm in the World War I period, right? And how Adventism comes under pressure by federal legislation right mm -hmm. and is 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 subject to surveillance and and censorship for adventist beliefs and you look at how ad the how the church how leaders and and how the rank and file reacted to pressure from that specific cultural moment political moment and it, it affects it affects how we frame the books we write and the yeah. articles we write and the sermons we preach so yeah, I, I think that is critical. It's harder and sometimes sure. it's more difficult to take, but I think that's that's where the that's where my jam is anyways. And I yeah. hope to hope to dive deeper into that. I, I think I like what you're saying was like, you know, the great controversy is theological history, right? I mean it's there's there's really nothing bad said about Martin Luther, even though he was an imperfect person <laughs> who said, who had theological ideas Avenus definitely do not agree with. But it's a theological reading of history. You're saying Let's not throw that away necessarily, but we want to add to it. We want to blend in with it uh, more more of these, like, uh, the ways in which Adventist history connects to the world around it. And I, I think that's really important, and it's worth repeating. I, the challenge, I think, is so that the history that you are hoping to see in the future is going to challenge some of our popular theological beliefs. For instance, if we just look at culture as this bad thing— Mm. Then connecting Avenus history to how it interacts with culture, well, it's bad to be influenced by the world around us, right? It's bad to have to be influenced in any way, shape, or form. All we need is the Bible. The Bible tells us what to eat. <laughs> the Bible tells us what laws need <clears throat> to be passed. I don't want to be affected by the world around me one bit, right? So this this history would would challenge that mindset a little bit. Saying, I'm guessing there's some there's some bad cultural influences, and then there's just we live in this world. Cultural That's right. I love you say that. There is also just we live in this world. For example, what would what would a person, right, perhaps new to Adventist history, think if we told them the re one of the major reasons why you're even part of an organization called the Seventh Day Adventist Church denomination is because there was a time in history in the 1860s where the church was under pressure because the country, the nation they lived in, was at war. Mm -hmm. Right. And the church mm -hmm. needed exemption for military service. And so they needed to organize in order to qualify and be recognized. Okay. So what do we have there? We have a, a simple example 
of the church, this theological right movement and entity mm -hmm. being directly impacted and influenced by the political, cultural, societal events around around the yeah. advent of that generation. So it's like it's like impossible to to sure to avoid it. It's impossible. I mean, you have people. I'm I'm gonna get into it right here. You have people out there who are like, we have um, we're, we're <laughs> we want a religious liberty exemption for a COVID vaccine. On the grounds that some people will argue, on the grounds that it's unhealthy, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to pollute my body, and I I mean that's I guess that's fine in the abstract. But my guess my question is, uh, did you oppose other vaccines? Or just this one. Okay, you think this one is worse than the others. Okay. Have you ever eaten a donut? Like, this is a concern for people because of their being influenced by Absolutely. what's going on with COVID. Okay, and I'm not Absolutely. saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're right. I'm just saying they're influenced by what's going on right now. 50 years ago, when vaccines were still required to, to travel overseas or something, we didn't have any problem with it. It was not a religious liberty issue. Now it is. Why? Because we're being influenced by the world around us. And again, That's I'm not right. going to weigh in on that. I'm just saying <laughs> it's a clear example of us yeah, being yeah. influenced by the world around us. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can even leave the world of vaccines and, you know, what we choose and choose not to protest in regard to government regulation. Sure. Right. Do you have you ever worn a seatbelt in your car? Have you ever been pulled over for not wearing a seatbelt? When's the last time you organized a protest? And I actually saw a study fascinating when when federal legislation first got rolled out on seatbelts and there was you know uproar and, and so sure. forth so so again totally hear what you're saying is that we are constantly impacted yeah. and influenced by the world and that doesn't have to be bad why even the biblical writers why did the biblical writers write in the register that they did right in the style and in what focusing on the concerns that they were focused on because they lived in a real world, in a real society with real problems, right? Which required real solutions, right? Right. So, so it's just the bread and butter of what it means to be human on this planet, and yet our history should reflect that. So it's it's. I think God uses this because if I sat in my little ivory tower and tried to write a perfect systematic theology or something. I'm not going to get all of that right. Sometimes I think you need you need something like and I'm not I'm not justifying. I'm just saying you need something like the Second World War and the Nazis to bring out some of the best theology, the best thinking about God mm. with Bonhoeffer and with others like that otherwise would not have existed because you can't just sit down and make that stuff up. Like you need to be in jail for your beliefs before some yeah. of this stuff occurs to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's in crisis that we reach a level of clarity. That becomes yeah. helpful to future generations. Actually, Kevin Burton and others have been doing great stuff too. Like, for example, the the Adventist belief on Revelation 13 and and the application of all of that. They were in a moment of crisis, right? Right. And yep. it informed their reading of the text. And so, I don't think we should shy away for how yeah how our surroundings are impacting us. I'm with you there. I want to. I want to change gears a little bit here and tell you something and ask you a question that's really dear to my heart, because what I see are a wonderful generation of Adventist historians who are asking really good questions, and we're anticipating another generation. Come on, Gen Z, step up. We're anticipating another generation where they're going to ask some really hard questions, some really good questions. My fear is we're going to have great Adventist historians and yet remain 
a poorly educated church on Avenus history. Mm. Because I think so many of the Avenists out there are still have that the 1950s mindset where Avenus history is about Ellen White and what she did. And as I've told some of the other guests in this episode, everything after 1915 is just is just an epilogue. You know, like, right. you know, we, you know, 1957 with QOD, we either listened to her there or we didn't listen to her there, right? Like, everything that happened after that is just kind of a, we either were faithful to her or not faithful to her. That's Avenue's history. And yet, like, so much good work is being done that fleshes out Avenue's history. And, and Ellen White, of course, is still very important to our history, but she's not the, she's not the main figure and the only one that matters. So, yeah, well... How do we how do we bridge that man? Like how do we get the stuff from that's being published in like diplomatic vogue or whatever it is <laughs> down to the pew? <laughs> well, I think I think several things on that. I think one is it raises the question on how seriously do Adventist intellectuals, historians, academics, how seriously do they take the calling to speak to the person in the pew? Mm. Right? in how we publish and where we write and, and all of this and how much effort are we making to speak to the person in the pew? For example, I think that this current moment is better poised to make an impact, to have that trickle down effect because of technology, because of the world that we live in, because of the internet, because of social media especially during and after this pandemic, where people who were even less versed in online engagement are more so now because of necessity. So yeah, I think we need to be doing like you're you're serving a huge role with your podcast. I think more of that needs to happen. I think and, and by the way, I'm not making I don't mean to make sweeping generalizations. There are, of course, Adventist intellectuals that write for church magazines and, to, and who do these things. But I just think there needs to be more of it. And more intentional, I'll give you an example. At Lightbearers, with whom I'm affiliated, Lightbearers Ministry and Arise Institute, we, we put together a program of online panels and this conversations, mm -hmm. right? And we called it something like Adventist Pioneers and Social Justice. And this was during, during some of the high points of last year where there was civil unrest and social unrest regarding racial injustice. And we did this program on Adventist pioneers and social justice, which goes back, by the way, to my earlier point, that there are two horns on the beast and that we ignore one, you know, at the expense mm -hmm. of the other. And I'm telling you, there were people all over Facebook, YouTube, and so forth. There was over 20,000 people watching for like the first episode. Hmm. And what did we do? We just, we just, we took it right back to the 1840s. And we walked it through decades of Adventist history with the simple question, how did Adventists, earlier generations, who were convinced of their prophetic message, how did that worldview inform their engagement with the social ills of their day, right? Mm -hmm. It was powerful. And, mm -hmm. and I, I dare say there's a lot of people who are not regular readers of Adventist history. Yeah who were really impacted by that series. We yeah. were drawing from primary sources. We're not out here pushing some agenda. Yep. Yep. We're drawing from primary sources, reading just the raw history and, and, and trying to situate it in, yeah. in, its, in its historical context. And it was powerful. So blah, 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 blah. I'm saying all of this to say that more needs to be done 
for the trickle down effect, right? For that mm-hmm. stuff to go downstream. So you believe in trickle down economics? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I believe in tr- I believe in trickle down theology. There you go. <laughs> and, and, and I think I think that we are poised, man. Like how how we're on vantage ground when it comes to there's so much. I mean, there mm-hmm. how many? Okay, how many people over the age of fifty are on Facebook today compared to half you know, five years ago? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. So so I think there's an opportunity here. I'm just using one simple example, but sure. but we we can talk about more nitty gritty stuff. For example. I think the per- the people in the pew, and this maybe sounds critical, but sometimes, not always, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the people in the pew tend to want, you know, hey, geography. They want the kind of history yes. that makes us feel good about ourselves. Right. That self self affirming that tells yeah. us inspiring stories of pioneers. And we and we don't naturally crave the hard stuff. By the way, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, but. The history that challenges us to the core, that challenges our mm-hmm. preconceived ideas. Mm-hmm. We need to normalize that kind of history. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and by the way, I don't think that's a merely a church problem. I think that's a problem with the wider public. Historians regularly complain that the books that get the biggest sales, or many of the books that get the biggest sales, are these you know sweeping biographies. Sure. From popular historians that you know. You know, really encouraging stories of American history and American presidents right. and how they were amazing and all that, right? Right. But to but to write history that's more self-critical and challenging, uh, that doesn't tend to get a lot. You know, we have so many examples of of this simple point. For example, the Black Lives Matter movement, and and now it's a great opportunity to get you and your podcast in trouble. Yep. But the or recent hot topic. Vaccines. Let's do this now. <laughs> <laughs> We're already into deep. We might as well just die. Uh, you know, whether you remember that controversy, should the yeah. church be supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement? And many Adventists objected to the movement on the grounds that its leaders were self-proclaimed Marxists and had different views on gender, etc. Yeah. So, so the historian could come to the discussion by introducing the history of Adventist pioneers who who could join in similar causes with other organizations and social movements and groups outside of the church that did not hold to the church's worldview yeah. in order to achieve other larger objectives. So to an Adventist in the pew, you, a historian might say, if you, wanna, if you want to be truly consistent with the history of Adventist pioneers and Adventists before us, mm-hmm. right? We would embrace a broader, large-hearted paradigm on this, and we would right. not cut off our opportunities for engagement, because if we did so, we would be going contrary to the tradition, right, and to the precedent <laughs> that has been set by previous yeah. ad. Blah blah. You get you get the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that that yeah. that I think is a good example uh, of the need for Adventist history to trickle sure. down. How many people in the pew know that ad- Adventist pioneers? were collaborating in a sense with Sunday law pushing crazy, you know. Yeah, the WCTU. Yeah, the women, the Christian Tempers or or, 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 or salon or saloon owners, you know, uh, who can join in battling Sunday laws. Right. I mean, atheists, <laughs> atheists right. who were arguing about, you know, against religious legislation and Adventists could back and get behind that as well. So most people... The general public doesn't know that, and but if they yeah. did, it would it would 
really impact how we interpret the problems that we're facing today. Right. Yeah, I think if all you have is your own evidence experience and you're you're pleasantly ignorant of everything that's gone before, it becomes very difficult to reason adventistly about mm. things. Mm. And that's the trick here because we what we want is I just want Ellen White to tell me what to think about something. I don't want I don't want to have to learn how to think. Right. I just want her to tell me this is bad, this is good, this is bad, this is good, and then I'm I'm all right. I'll just you know, okay. You know, does her stuff about coffee apply to decaf? I don't know. It's close enough. <laughs> you know, it's bad. Or somebody may conclude it's good. Like we don't we don't want to actually get down into the nitty gritty and be like, what in the world was she talking about? Why was she saying these things? As best as we can tell. And and like what we need, it seems to me very desperately is to learn how to think adventistly and not just conclude, like just run to find the nearest conclusion that we can just, you know, like stickers and we can just stick them on everything in life. Like bad, good, bad, good, bad, good. <laughs> like, why is it bad? Why is it good? And this is what younger generations for several generations have been rebelling against, right? Like you can only go up in the waters on Sabbath so far right. you know, in the ocean. It's like, but why is that bad? Like, why is it the ankles and not the knees right. or, <laughs> or the hips? Right. Or... And, you know, we could, you know, to even get more edgy with this, we could even add, to the person who says, I just want Ellen White to tell me what to do and what to think. I would say, do you really? Because yeah. if you did, what will you do when you run into those instances where Ellen White complained of people sweepingly yeah. taking uncritically and some yeah. statement out of context that she made? And she specifically said, use common sense. So the question is, do you really want Ellen White to tell you <laughs> how to think? Because if you did you would reach the conclusion that Ellen White is telling you to use your common sense yeah. and to understand that things apply differently in different contexts. Right. Uh, so, again, we would just be consistent with much of much of the sure. history. But I do think there's going to be a, a bit of a difference between, let's just say, publicizing Adventist history. So, you know, Morgan's book on, on Louis Sheaf or, uh, you know, let's say you talk about the FBI in World War One. you know, surveilling Avis. It's like these are snippets of Avenus history, and I think it's it's going to be different than that single captivating story of Avenus history that, like, the meta story that people hold on to, right? So, like, people remember things, they learn things, and then they forget things, but they, they remember, like, the enduring memory is that Ellen White is a boss lady, and God did all these amazing miracles through her and with her, and that's why, you know, like everything she says is good so I can rely upon it. And, and that's it. Like, okay, did she go to Australia? I don't care. Did, did this other thing happen in slavery, anti-slavery movement and all that stuff? I don't care. What, what I have is this large overarching story. And I feel like we can add a bunch of those, those little stories to that. But I, I fear that that large overarching story that is Ellen White centric and Ellen White only, Ellen White onlyism. Can we? Can that be a thing? <laughs> like they're they're never gonna fully grasp it. Well, I, what I'm until they let see, go of that. But what I'm advocating for is not more of these little things in and you know as ends of themselves. I'm advocating to dismantle the meta narrative. Yeah. I'm advocating a new meta narrative. For example, here's an example, right? Here's a big picture, just on one simple idea. What if it were the case? that the bulk of Adventist history communicated this truth, that early Adventists did not believe in focusing exclusively on, quote, 
preaching the gospel by which most people today mean, you know, traditional evangelism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but rather that the early church believed that Adventist apocalypticism not only allowed for social and political engagement, it actually demanded it. Mm. That is the bread and butter of the yeah. implications of the Adventist message. That was part of preaching mm -hmm. the gospel. So mm -hmm. that is a meta-narrative claim. That's, yeah. that's not getting caught in the weeds. That's not some, right. you know, thing over here in the corner. That is a big picture claim. And so I'm advocating that this new generation, I keep saying new generation. It almost sounds like I'm parting with anybody who was part of a previous yeah. generation. I don't you mean... people on TikTok, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean... I should stop saying new generation and just saying moving forward, yeah. those engaged in the project of Adventist history, <laughs> writing and teaching. Yeah. I think we should just paint a meta narrative that's more yeah. accurate. Right. Yeah. I, I I'm, I'm with you there. I think the challenge is, is constructing a meta narrative in a, in a post-Christian or, or post-modern society is very difficult because the trend in Adventist history is like we need to tell more stories coming out of China and out of Ghana and out of you know wherever, right? Because it's so American centric, we need to tell a more international Adventist history. And I'm behind that. But how do you weave together a meta narrative out of you know we're going to have an explosion in knowledge about Adventist history in the next few decades as as like you know China opens up or something like imagine the number of stories that are going to come out of there. Um, that maybe can't come out of there now. I don't know. And so we're going to have so much information that I wonder if that's going to intimidate people into back into the old meta narrative where things were simpler, where it was just Ella White and her homies and they just did their thing. Like, but I don't, it's just too much out there. Like, how do you weave that together? That's, that's the challenge I feel like. Yeah. And I don't mean to, uh, by no means do I think it's easy, but I'm just saying, I don't think it needs to be that. I don't think it needs to be framed like that in such an intimidating yeah. way. I think it's simple. Again, I have an article coming out about China, the Boxer Rebellion in China, 1900-1901. We might ask, what the heck events happening in China in 1901 have anything to do with my conception yeah. of Adventist history writ large as an American? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because hopefully that story, right, sheds light on what was happening in the United States. That story sheds it traces ideas it traces ideology it traces concerns and questions that adventists have been wrestling with and then we can ask mm -hmm. whether or not adventists continue to wrestle with those things i think the hard work of history is exactly that it's making those links in order to to stake our claim for mm -hmm. significance so i don't think it needs to be viewed as this hugely, uh, you know, overwhelming thing of all of this, you know, Nigeria and there's so much great yeah, stuff yeah, happening yeah. in different countries. I think it all trickles down to the same thing. Like I said, retelling the meta narrative. All of those mm -hmm. stories tell us something. Right? Yeah. It help us un helps us understand something. And I happen to think that that something is e expanding our meta narrative, our understanding, how we tell everything. And I love what you're saying. You know, it's all centered on one generation of Adams, you know, around Ellen White. And there's so yeah. much work that needs to be done, you know, and, and, and people are currently doing it. Like, you know, the relationship between Adventism and fundamentalism, which I'm sure your other, your other speakers have talked about. Yeah. So there, yeah. There's, there's stuff happening. 
And you talk about, okay, but how do we change the current meta narrative? Here's the thing, man. Here's the thing. There is a meta narrative for a large swath mm. of Adventists. You're, yeah, you're just... thinking of you're thinking of that generation that grew up reading right those 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 <laughs> typical Adventist books. But I'm thinking about yeah. I'm thinking about another generation. I'm thinking about my generation, brother. There is no meta narrative of Adventist history. There is very little. Yeah. That's true. Reference point for Adventist history. In a sense, that is a good thing because we have, in a sense, an empty canvas. It's not completely mm. empty, of course, right? We've picked up on things here and there that sure. have turned us off here and there, but it's largely an empty canvas. Yeah. Well, I think, though, that with this younger generation, um, it's leading to some challenging questions because let me tie this together by saying, with the generation that does have the meta narrative, the Ellen White focused apologetic style of Adventist history, I think they they don't cling to that because it's a good story. I think they cling to it because these times are crazy right now, and and it gives them identity. God, you know, held had her hold up an eighteen pound Bible, and like that's you know she didn't breathe in vision. Like these are the things that makes us special. So it's not that I'm interested in the most correct version of Avenus history. It's that I want the version of Avenus history that gives me the most conviction. Well, and, you mean that's most flattering? You mean that's most Yeah, like that makes me feel special. That makes me feel mm -hmm. like my my theological choices are on the right track and, you know, this people is God's people, you know, because of these miracles or because Ellen White said something or did something. And and the problem I think from their mindset is now you're focusing on on trivial things like wars and how economics has influenced adventism or whatever it's like the whole point is that god gave her visions you know thousands and thousands of them even though we have probably not thousands and thousands of them but you know like that's the legend of ellen white that's grown up and with the younger generation i think who, who didn't grow up with that stuff they're asking harder questions like mm. does 1844 matter like mm. who cares if jesus walked from one room in heaven to another like we should be focusing on social justice and things like that that actually make a difference in this world. I wasn't there to see Jesus move from one compartment to another in heaven. Who cares? Like what difference does that really make on earth in our lives? So you have like these two things going on at the same time. Like the one, like they're clinging to 1844. This is what gives us significance as a people. And then like the younger generation, it's like, just let it go. Let it go. So, <laughs> so okay, great point. But here's what I would say to that. I would say we could begin by asking the question, why? Why are those young people saying, who cares about that? Let's focus on this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest that one of, again, I'm not making sweeping generalizations. One of the reasons for that is because the young people are reacting. They're huh. overreacting. It's an overcorrection to, a, to an, a previous existing problem. And that problem is what we've been dancing around. That problem is the fixation of Adventist history that is untethered to reality, to, mm -hmm. to human reality, right? To human mm -hmm. society. So a young person living today who's bombarded with TikTok, with Instagram, with, with this entire world of images and messaging, messaging from every single, you know, yeah. direction they face, there's messaging coming to them. So... Of course, they're going to look back and say, okay, what does my church tradition offer me to make sense out of all of this? And if they only see 
cushy stories from yeah. the 1840s and 50s and 60s. Of course, they're going to react. <laughs> they're going to say, who gives a rip about any of this stuff? Right. right? How, how does so it help think, me? How does that help me? So so my sense is that the a, 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 an approach to that is to correct the original reason why mm. there is that whiplash or reaction. Yeah. To retell Adventist history in such a way that is directly related to the world around them. So yeah. that a young person in my generation doesn't have to pick and choose. Do I mm. want the 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 uh, isolated yeah. theological world of that my church offers me, or do I want the world that is pressing from my commitment and yeah. and in concern for social justice, for human human rights, human dignity, humanity? I have to pick and choose. And my question is: It's criminal that mm. any young people are put in a position where they have to pick and choose. You don't have to pick and choose. The one informs the other. There is inseparable. And mm. I think that we can argue that from Adventist history. Mm. I think I, I wish Adventist historians today realized, especially the, the up-and-coming generation that we speak so much about here, when you do Adventist history, you do Adventist identity formation because mm. identity is at least partially based on our own story, like where we came from, right? Like, oh, I'm from Italian immigrants who did That's this. Right. You know, my grandfather killed someone in Italy. Like, we take, we internalize those stories, and they become part of who we are. Mm. And so, Avena's history is really just it's it's identity formation and reformation, or reformation, we might say. Yes. And and so, when we get a more accurate picture of Avena's history, a more holistic picture of Avena's history, we hope that the result of that will be better formed Adventists today. Absolutely. We get a better sense of who we are, right? Mm. Who are we? And, and we, we only know that by looking at where we come from, of, of tracing, you know, the concepts, the, the worldview, the perspective of reality that we yeah. have inherited. Yeah. You know? And how was that perspective of reality framed? How did it develop? By understanding all of that, I think we're we're in a better position to apply it in the current moment. But man, I don't mm. blame at all any young person who's like, "Yep, this stuff is completely irrelevant yeah. to me," and yeah. I have in no way, shape, or form figured that you know the magic bullet. I'm in, I'm embarked on this project yeah. with other historians, yeah, trying to figure this out, yeah, trying to figure this out, and it's it's a process, right? It's a it's trial and error. It's right, but I think the project is an exciting one and it has huge potential. And I personally dream of an Adventist Renaissance, so to speak, mm. of a mm. new Adventist generation that new Adventist writers who are f with fiery pens, you know, who are looking at the world, who understand yeah. what's happening in the world, and who apply their Adventist worldview in a compelling yeah. and relevant and meaningful way. Adventist Renaissance. That's, that's what I, what I dream about. Man, why are the, why are the Calvinists so, so much better at that than we are? <laughs> like every time, that's, like so often I'm like, well, this looks like a really interesting book about like, how does, you know, whether it's, yeah. uh, you know, about Christianity and climate change or Christianity and economics, it's always a Calvinist. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think there is a strain within Calvinism that does not suffer from the anti-intellectualism that no. Adventism and other traditions often struggle with. 
Yeah. I don't know if it's Calvin. Just Calvin was a was a beast. You know, he was just a, such a careful. I don't know what it is. Maybe yeah. from that tradition, as it as it spreads throughout different geographies. I don't know, man. But I'm with you. I really, yeah. I really think there should be regular writer. Okay, now now I'm just preaching. But there should be regular, regular writers in the New York Times, in the Atlantic, in the Washington right. that are Adventists. Right. Adventist thinkers and that right. are to use the phrase we've been using that are thinking adventistly. Yep. Yeah. And it's criminal that that is not the case. I know. It's crazy to me. I know. That 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 is not the case. How is that possible with an intellectual tradition like this? Yeah. I don't get it. I just don't get it. And I know no. that you know, it's a drop in the bucket, but, you know, and we're all part of the problem, but, man. You know, we have so we, much we, to we offer need... the world. I, I don't think Evan has realized that. We have a lot to offer the world. Our apocalyptic perspective, for instance, in, in trying to balance the transcendent and the imminent, right? Like, we're in this mm. world, but we're also looking for the world to come. Like, I, I think there's so much there that that that's of Same. interest if we could apply it. Same. If we could think it through and make it real. Um, there's just so much there. There really is. Absolutely. So Matt, to close my comment on this, I think you need to dethrone and unseat Joe Rogan. I think you need, I think you need to become, you need to become the leading podcaster There we go. in the United States, if not the world. I think Spotify should roll out their hundred right. million dollar contract for you. Come on, Spotify. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> thanks man Jeffrey it was great to visit with you all the best hey thanks brother thanks Jeffrey and everyone else who was joining me today on this 100th episode of the Avenus History Podcast it's been 7 years 100 episodes Woo! it's been a long journey but you know we're not finished yet You've made it. You have endured to the end of a very long episode. This is Dan Carlin territory here. This is hardcore history territory where he drops these three or four hour episodes a few times a year. Whew. I don't know how he does it. Now, if you'd like me to do these super episodes again every once in a while, maybe we'll do it every October or every few years. I don't know. Uh, but let me know. Let me know. Did you like this? Is it too much? You, you want to get back to the normal stuff? Um, that's fine. If you have questions for any of the scholars that I've talked to, let me know. Because maybe the next time I check in with one of them, like Kevin Burton talking about this Jesuit conspiracy stuff, maybe I'll ask him the question that you send in to me. You can send them uh, to History Podcast at gmail.com and I will get them there. Uh, a couple of other things. I should let you know that our new website is live just happened not too long ago the uh, store is not up i didn't make a new store yet but we're going to be adding it back i just wanted to get it up for now i'm also going to be adding a blog to it so that i can jot down a few thoughts about avenue's history that may not make it into an episode sometimes you just discover things and you're like that's a cool thing um doesn't really make sense to put it in the episode but it's a cool thing so it's a, a place to to share it there maybe we can do some interviews there book reviews things like that just gives a gives us another space for that. I want the website and not Facebook to uh, to be more central in terms of what's going on. So that is live. Then you can go to the website to, to AdventistHistoryPodcast.org and you will find it there. 
waiting for you. Let me know what you think about it. The uh, website and this podcast is is part of the Avenus History Network. You've probably seen that branding thrown around here the last few months on social media. And I, I'm, you know, I'm serious about building this thing because we want to be a resource for Avenus History, not just a couple of podcasts, but we want to offer you some more resources going forward: online courses, books, art, audiobooks, ebooks, whatever. My goal is to connect Adventist members, even non-Adventist members. If you just want to know where the Adventist church, you're very welcome here. And uh, connect those members, those lay people, to Adventist historians and to tell the story of Adventist history better. I really believe what Jeffrey and I were talking about at the end, that Adventist history is a key component in forming our Adventist identities. I am also sorting through what it means to be an Adventist Christian in this secular age, okay? It's not like some people are immune to this. We are all under these cross pressures of secularism, and we're all trying to figure out what does it mean to be this thing that I am in this time that I live. And So because our own history is a part of our identity, I think by telling better stories, by telling untold stories, it will help us figure out how to navigate the 21st century a little bit more or as we, we put it with Jeffrey, to think Adventistly about the problems we face. So that's why I'm building all of this. That's the vision of what we're doing here. It's, it's a fun podcast, don't get me wrong, but it's also part of something bigger, part of uh, educating, informing, enlightening, entertaining people about uh, Adventist history in the hopes that it will give them tools and resources and options and figure out where to go as, uh, as, as they chart their own course through life. Okay, so if you want to support what we're doing here just by listening, great. If you want to get a t-shirt or something, great. That store will be back up. I think you can still get it on Facebook if you wanted to. If you want to support this podcast financially and join the order of Joseph Bates or the order of Ellen White or whatever, the different orders we have in Patreon, there's a link to Patreon in the show notes. You can also go to the new website and, uh, and there's a link there, I think. Um, Anyways, I, I thank you guys so much for your time. I know your time is important. I am honored that you chose to spend your time with me today. So go out there, be great, think Adventistly about things, and I'll see you next time. It's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.